Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, March the 1st, 843-661-0937. So we've, we've kind of walked through the seasons of the year. I don't know when winter ends and when spring begins. I don't know when spring ends and summer begins, but I know when they run the Daytona 500, and I know when they have the Masters. And to me, there's a – and I know when Labor Day is. To me, there's more of a um, a landmark date – than a calendar date for when certain seasons conclude and when other seasons end. Ask you a weird kind of question, Reb. Okay. In the afternoon, what is the most important transitioning of hour? In other words, if you leave work at 4.01, do you feel you left a lot later than if you left at 3.58? <laughs> um, you see where I'm headed? Yeah. Yeah, so is the is the question is the transition hour three to four or four to five? Well, or I mean, five since, to since since I've got this empowered uh, position of employment that I get to call my own shots, other than oh. you know six to ten in the morning, I can be kind of where I want to be. Now I've got some some obligations and responsibilities, but it's almost like out of respect to my father, I don't go to the gym. Um, I feel like I'm 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 more entitled to go to the gym at four oh one than I am at three fifty eight. I see. You see where I'm headed? Yep. Yep. 401 <laughs> is genuinely late afternoon. Yeah, three th- three something still seems like the middle of the work. Day. You look at your watch, you're like three something, man. I can't go to the gym at three something. Yeah, I my get day, that. My day to get out of grave and get me if I were to do that. But at 401, I'm saying like, okay, I mean, I put a good day's work in and it's after four. So um so what month kind of fits that bill? To me, it's February to March. Yeah. Be- I mean, March, March to April, you still feel like you're kind of I mean, from February to March, you feel like you're leaving um the dark days of winter that's right you're, ma- you're making progress yeah, toward longer, the spring. longer days a little more pleasant weather you mind turning that off Rev, before i get did you hear that more distracted? of course i did sorry about that it was lack, my phone lack of respect have Something. you silenced your phone yet i have okay i keep my phone silent because <laughs> i don't want to know who's texting or calling 843-661-0937 usually do. is our number so an issue we've been talking about this time of the morning, the last couple of mornings, I thought about this yesterday. I don't know if you actually ever answered the question as it relates to the potential realignment of conferences and schools and everything, and you being a Gamecock guy, and as you've admitted this week, hanging out with, quote, the insiders, uh, discussing these issues. But you as a Gamecock guy who hangs out with insiders. Um, what I'm not you, an insider, but I do hang out with insiders. And, and I said that very, okay. very carefully. You did. You did. Yeah, you I, did. Didn't, didn't I want to make it clear I'm not an insider. Right. But. What is your feeling about Clemson potentially being in the SEC? I think if Clemson had to leave the ACC to go to one or the other, I would rather see them go to the SEC than Big Ten. Um, it, they're our rival. I mean, they're, they're our measuring stick. I mean, we hadn't measured up so well, but but still, they are your in-state rival. Um, I remember being lieutenant governor. There were Clemson legislators, and there were South Carolina legislators. If Clemson needed the water carried on a, a bond bill, they went to um, Harvey Peeler. If the Gamecocks needed a bond bill done, they went to uh, Thomas Alexander. I mean, you know what I'm saying. I mean, uh, uh, Tom Alexander. Uh, no, not Tom. What's Tom's name? He's in the house. Anyway, um, Jay Lucas, speaker of the house, did a lot of work, heavy lifting for USC. Um, so, so I wouldn't want to see Clemson in a in a league in a land far, far away. I mean, I just don't. It, it, it waters down the rivalry. Now, I've gathered. And, and I, you know, this is unofficial. It seems to me that the coaches at USC are not that opposed to Clemson being in the SEC. Um, in a perfect world, they stay in the ACC. Um, they face a $15 million a year deficit. 
to USC in Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, the teams. And, and see, here's what's unique about Florida State and Clemson. FSU and Clemson don't recruit players that Wake Forest and Duke are. Florida State and Clemson are recruiting the same player that Georgia is, that Tennessee is, that South Carolina yeah, is. True. That's why it's such an outlier. And I've always felt that at some point in time, now I didn't know what it would look like, but I always felt like Clemson is a misfit. FSU's a misfit in the world of college football. I'm not saying the ACC sucks. I mean, I, I'm not here to, to say that. Here's what I will say, and I go back to what I said yesterday. The magic number is $3 million. I mean, you can have PowerPoint presentations by consultants from, from here to kingdom come. You can read article after article after article after article. At the end of the day, the issue at hand is how many people are watching the games. And nearly every game of the Big Ten has 3 million viewers. Nearly every game of the SEC has 3 million viewers. Hardly ever does an ACC game have 3 million viewers, except if Clemson or Florida State are playing. I think I read day before yesterday, Clemson's average viewership is about 3.02 million. Florida State's at about 3.08 million. I'm, 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 please bear with me. I know those aren't exact numbers. Let me, let me say this in a little more accurate fashion. You ready? Clemson and Florida State are the only teams that average north of 3 million viewers in the ACC. Nearly every team outside of Vanderbilt and maybe Northwestern in the, because um, you've got to have somebody helping with the SCT. You know, in the and the average grades of the league, um, so Vanderbilt stays at the SEC. Why to help the league look more academically inclined? Northwestern stays at the Big Ten. Why to make the league look a little more academically inclined? So, um, but it's, the number's three million, and there aren't many SEC football games played on ESPN or CBS that didn't have three million viewers. The SEC network is different. It's not in every home. It's not in the majority home. It's kind of a um, got to buy another package to get the ACC, the SEC, the Big Ten, or the ACC network. But in, in in ESPN games or network games, you don't see many Big Ten or SEC games that don't have three million viewers. So television contracts, I mean, you, you think they care how many people are in Death Valley or how many people are in Williams Bryce? They could care less if there's fifty thousand or a hundred thousand. They don't care about the heel. They don't care about 2001. They don't care about the Paul. They don't care about Sandstorm. All they care about is how many people in this nation are watching this game so we can carry that data to the advertisers. And it would be what they would call Rev. And in our mind, in your industry, it's a rate card. And, you know, and, and maximize the benefit of having these games on television. And the ACC has a problem. They have a big problem when it comes to ratings and revenue. And, and I think you're beginning to see these two super conferences, and it, and it really what forced the envelope, and I know this from being a friend of the insiders, what forced the envelope is when UCLA and Southern Cal officially announced their intent to join the Big Ten, Oklahoma and Texas officially announced their intent to join the SEC, that's when you really said, I better, I better find me a seat before the music stops. I mean, I can see if you're Clemson or Florida State, you, you got to get together and say, hey, you see where this is headed, don't you? Yeah. Well, we don't want to get left out. No, not at all. Because once again, um, I'll give you a good example of a number. We'll, we'll get to politics here. Um, most of America's existence have consisted of women having about 2.1 children uh, during their childbirthing years. The, the average American, um, I mean, it, it takes that to population stability. I mean, I, I read something yesterday or the day before. Um, we're, we're, we're in a population decline. We're averaging about 1.5 children per uh, per 
mom, per, you know, child, women of childbearing. Here's another statistic. Half of women under the age of 45 don't have a baby. First time in American history that half of all the women under the age of 45 don't have a baby. That historically has been about 60%. So when you go from 2.1 to 1.5, that doesn't seem to be that dramatic a decline. I mean, it really doesn't. I mean, that doesn't seem to be that dramatic a decline. But if you extrapolate that data rev out to great-grandchildren, all of a sudden you got a 35% decline in population. I mean, I think oh. I mean, you got to have 2.1 children in America for population stability. We're at 1.5. Uh, well, what are we worried about, you know, six-tenths of one kid? Well, I mean, extrapolate that to the next generation, the next generation. So what Clemson's dealing with and what Florida State's going to deal with is South Carolina gets 55 million, Clemson gets 36 million. Well, I mean, we'll just have to make that 19 million up somewhere. Well, in 10 years, it's $190 million. And I think Clemson is very wise. I think Florida State is very savvy to start understanding the financial issues that will arise if the teams they're trying to compete with, if Clemson's desire was to compete with Florida State, excuse me, with Wake Forest, Duke, and, and NC State in football, they'd be fine. But that's not what they've set that program up to do, right? I mean, that's one of the elite programs in America. I'm three-time national champion, two-time recent national champion. Their measuring stick is what? The playoffs. And and they would be fine at $36 million if their desire was to run down that hill and whoop up on the Demon Deacons, but that's not their desire. Their desire is to run down that hill and whoop up on the Georgia Bulldogs or the Alabama Crimson Tide or the Tennessee Volunteers. And they believe, as I do and as Florida State does, that $19 million a year less to spend on athletics year after year after year becomes this population decline issue. Ain't a lot of difference in 2.1 and 1.5, but there's a lot of difference, you know, a couple of generations down the line if we continue in that population um, decline. But personally, you ask me, Mm -hmm. I would rather Clemson be in the SEC. I wouldn't like the fact that they get as much revenue as as the Gamecocks do, but I think for the sake of the rivalry and, and, and the passion of the state and competing against one another, I don't want them going to Illinois to play in the snow the week before they come to Columbia to play South Carolina. I mean, that just seems weird to me. And I ain't much on weird. You know what I mean? I kind of like those sorts of things to be as they always should be. So um, count me as a Gamecock in favor of um, them joining the SEC. Now, once again, if, if I had my druthers, I would let them stay in the ACC and deal with that $19 million <laughs> deficit, but I just don't see that happening. I think Florida State and, and Clemson are going to force the uh, the ACC's hand, and I mean they've already gotten together and offered this disproportional revenue sharing model that really and truly makes sense. I mean, Clemson and FSU can say, look, the only reason you guys are getting $36 million in, uh, in television revenue is our football games. Ain't nobody watching y'all play football. A lot of people are watching us play football, so y'all are sharing it. It's the old Vanderbilt story. I mean, Vandy, you know, gets the same amount as Alabama. Do you really believe that Vanderbilt contributes proportionally to the SEC TV deal as much as Alabama or Georgia? Of course they don't. But they, um, you know, and I'll say this, and then we'll move on. People find it a little bit um, tacky the way the SEC sticks together. But now you kind of sort of see why. It just means more. It just means more. And it's almost like, uh, you know, the chant. I mean, I know people get bothered. Oh, that's stupid. That's crazy. I don't care what happens to your league. <laughs> that irritates well, I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of Carolina. I'm not a fan of the SEC. But but in the way these deals are constructed, 
you, you kind of sort of got to be a fan of the league. And um, and I think the SEC's done a good job. And I think the Big Ten is beginning to do better at this brotherhood. You know, um, I don't know how you yell Big Ten at a ball game, uh, you know, or market <laughs> that brand in some way, shape, or form. But I think when you join that conference, you're a member of that conference. You enjoy the benefit of being a member of that conference. And it is unbelievably financially lucrative. And it becomes more and more financially lucrative as Southern Cal, UCLA, Texas, Oklahoma join these two. I had a Clemson buddy tell me yesterday, uh, we're headed to two super conferences. I mean, we got to get in one. I just don't know which one we're going to get into. Kind of interesting yesterday when I say it, Clemson added lacrosse and gymnastics. That's that's interesting to me. That leads me to believe that their calculus is the Gamecocks are going to pitch such a fit about them potentially getting to the SEC that we're going to have to make our way to the Big Ten. But if you're adding sports and their lacrosse and gymnastics, that just leads me to believe you, you, you believe your trajectory or path may be in a different direction. It would really be a good question for Clemson fans. I mean, obviously, you want to you do the best you can do. And if I were a Clemson fan, that's exactly what I would want. I want to I get home somewhere uh, that I think is in my best interest. But do you really want to go to Northwestern and play basketball? Go to Illinois, play football? Um, imagine a Clemson women's <sighs> imagine the Clemson women's volleyball team playing a midweek midweek game against UCLA. I mean, how does that shake out? Wouldn't that be real weird? It, would. it just doesn't make much sense. Now we could see this. You ready? We could see a an absolute tearing up of everything. No SEC, no Big Ten. All of a sudden, college football has like the NFL, NFC East, NFC West. NFC Central, AFC East, AFC Central, AFC um, West. 843-661-0937, our number. That is our sports tutorial tutorial, ah, tutorial of the day. That is it. Let's get to the um, to the issue at hand. And I do believe, uh, uh, the reason I was looking at the population is we're talking about Social Security and Medicare, and I'm trying to dig into these. What are the macros? We're talking about, you know, um, a person dies every four seconds. A person is born every six seconds. Um, that's kind of the average. I mean, I'm not saying two kids aren't born simultaneously, but we may go 10 seconds and not have another birth, but that's kind of the average birth and death rate, uh, in America today. Uh, life expectancy is somewhat in decline. Kind of weird there. We had 25, 30, 35, 40 years of increase in life expectancy. Fentanyl and COVID have caused that number to come down a bit. Really fentanyl is the driver in that 450,000, um, young people. Average age, 22.3, somewhere thereabout, have died as a result of fentanyl overdoses. The COVID number impacted, but not anywhere near as much because 85 to 90% of all COVID deaths were people over the age of 75. I mean, that, that they were the ones that were in, I mean, we said that to begin with, um, that they were most at risk in, um, in dealing with COVID. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. Let's take a break, come back, take our first call of this Wednesday morning. 843-661-0937. Programming note, real quick. We have historically done our Pepsi trivia on Mondays and Fridays toward the end of the show as we're about to leave the air. Uh, Rev and I have had a lot of things going on with podcasting and trying to get equipment set up, and we've decided we're going to get, it's going to be Mondays and Fridays, but it's going to be randomly selected throughout the broadcast. Uh, we did not do it Monday. We dropped the ball. We will do it at some point in time today. And and once again, it historically has been designated for about the last thing we do on Monday. 
And once again, as we get out of here on Friday, not the case any longer because I'm led to believe that many of you could care less for this radio show, but you like winning a T-shirt. <laughs> so you tune in for five minutes on Monday, five minutes on Friday, and we're going to force you to listen to this feeble attempt at Radio that to win a T-shirt. <laughs> we're in control of that. We may not be in control of much, but we're in control of that. Let's and, go to the phone. And, and really, the truth is, is on s- several Fridays and Mondays, I mean, the show's rolling, we have callers on hold, and you hate to interrupt that flow, and it goes right up to the end of the show. And 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 so anyway, this, I think, is a great way to handle it. And I'm all for it. Okay, and, and we have a contractual obligation to make sure Pepsi's taken care of, so we're going to honor that obligation, but we want to balance that with um, when you have something to say as a listener, we always want to hear from yeah, you guys. Yeah, listen throughout the show Monday and throughout the show Friday for your chance to win Pepsi trivia. There you go. There you go. There you go. Breeze, good morning. You know, yesterday I was listening to Citizen Jay, and I was, it was making me, I was kind of amazed, you know, because we told about it, but, you know, it, 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 actually I just got reminded of it all yesterday. But, you know, it amazes me that the Democrat of, you know, they had them, you know, before, when Trump first ran, the bottom line is the Democrats stole the election from themselves. They all stole. Yeah, Bernie Sanders was beating Hillary Clinton. Y'all remember that? I do. And, and the Democrats literally stole the election from Bernie Sanders, one of them, to give to who they wanted to give it to. So really, the Democrat primary wasn't even a primary. It was just a coronation. And they're perfectly okay with that. You know, whatever their God, which is government, and their religion, which is politics, commands them to do, they are obedient servants of the state. I mean, if if I knew that my guy had gotten ripped off that bad, I mean, I can't. And what was amazing is even after all of the people that were voting for Bernie Sanders had their vote basically disenfranchised, when Hillary got the nomination fraudulently, they all came and voted for her. You didn't have none of these never Hillarys. Did you ever hear any never Hillarys? There were no never Hillarys. They are obedient servants of the state. They do what they're told to do, and they don't care what the consequences are. And I'll tell you another thing, too. You know, I think Ohio has actually a Republican governor, which doesn't mean squat. We've already figured that out. And, and then you had the, uh, the Democrat uh, guy from, um, what do you call it, the EPA guy, told everybody that the water was fine to drink and there's no poison there. I wonder if Citizen Jay and all the other loyal followers of the state would be willing to drink the water in East Palestine, Ohio. You know, we've already forgot about that, guys, but those guys are going to be dying. I wonder how many uh, obedient followers of the state would be willing to drink the water after their government, their God, told them it's fine to drink. You know, I mean, I just wonder how how devoted they are to their God government, because I guarantee you, that that governor just said he would drink the water. I never saw him drink the water. Did you ever see the picture of him dipping him some water out the stream and drinking it? I don't I think I did. I don't think I did. You thank know. thank you, Breeze. Appreciate yeah. it. 843-661-0937. You know, Jeff called yesterday, and we had uh, a respectful debate or disagreement on, um, on Fox, and he was talking about Fox intentionally lying to its viewers, you know, saying the election was stolen, Breeze is touching on on some of what the Democrats did. Remember, we had a presidential debate on Saturday night when Bernie Sanders was in a pretty good place. And I mean, if 58% of your voters 
believe in socialism over capitalism, why would the self-avowed socialist be the front runner? I mean, just kind of put that in your pipe and smoke it for a second. I mean, if 58% and about every recent poll shows that the majority of Democrat primary voters believe that socialism is better for the uh, American people than capitalism. So if you've got a um, somewhat of a capitalist in Hillary Clinton, I mean, she's a capitalist when it pertains to the Clinton bank accounts, probably um, not so much with others. But, but the point Jeff made was so interesting to me. And Jeff never answered my question when I proposed, you know, who do you trust? I mean, because he was kind of, you're just talking about Fox News intentionally lied. And, um, and I mean, I've got several articles here. I went back and I didn't read the entire transcript. I read some of the summary on the, um, on the, uh, the pleadings. And, I mean, Fox is basically accused or being accused of knowingly broadcasting false information um, about the Dominion voting machines uh, in order, to, I guess, Rev, to promote claims that the 2020 election was stolen from former President Donald Trump. I mean, that's the crux of the argument. And, um, and you know, Fox, in their filing, says, in its coverage, Fox News fulfilled its uh, commitment to inform fully and comment fairly. Some hosts view the president's claims skeptically. Others view them hopefully. All recognize them as profoundly newsworthy. There you go. That's Murdoch telling you the truth. We all recognize them as profoundly newsworthy. Insert newsworthy for ratings. Revenue. I mean, that's why Fox did what they did. But Jeff's insinuation was Fox is the outlier. I mean, Fox is lying to the American people, knowing they're, they're, they're misleading people, talking about these election claims that were never substantiated. They were never uh, proven to be um, correct. Well, my argument to Jeff was, okay, let's say they did. Let's say that Fox loses this $1.6 billion um, lawsuit to Dominion voting machines because a judge or jury says that you knew this was not true and you allowed your, your network to continue to broadcast. These, um, these falsehoods. I mean, I don't think they will, but let's say they do. Because if I'm Tucker Carlson, you know what I do on the witness stand? You know what I say? I still think the election was stolen. I absolutely think the election was stolen. What do you mean, Mr. Carlson? How do you think the election was stolen? Nobody's ever investigated it. I mean, nobody's had a full-fledged investigation of the 2020 election because they don't believe it will stand the light of day. But, but I went back and read. I was reading yesterday afternoon and last night about the um, the Supreme Court yesterday hearing the student debt forgiveness case. And um, so I went and read, and I didn't go to Fox because I didn't want them to lie to me. I wanted these other media outlets to tell me the truth. So I went to the New York Times. I went to the Wall Street <laughs> Journal. I went to the Washington Post. I went to CBS.com. Okay. I went to NBC.com. I went to Vox. I went to the Huffington Post because you can't trust that damn National Review. You can't believe a word that Breitbart says. Fox News will lie to you through their teeth. But these other media darlings, oh, they tell you the truth. So let me read you an accounting. And one of the major news agencies in all of America might be the biggest news agency in all of America. You ready? On the last day of February, the Supreme Court will consider the fate of President Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. The legal issues are straightforward. A federal law known as the HEROES Act explicitly authorizes the program that Biden announced in the summer of 2022 as COVID-19 pandemic persisted. Under that program, most borrowers who earn less than $125,000 a year during the pandemic will receive $10,000 student loan forgiveness 
Borrowers who receive Pell Grants program that serves low-income students may have up to $20,000 in debt forgiveness. And yet, while this program is clearly authorized by a federal law permitting the Secretary of Education to waive or modify many student loan obligations as the Secretary deems necessary in connection with war or other military operations or national emergency, it is unlikely to survive contact with the U.S. Supreme Court dominated by Republican appointees. The court will hear two cases challenging this loan forgiveness program, Biden versus Nebraska and Department of Education versus Brown. The reason why at least one of these lawsuits is likely to end badly for student borrows is something known as the major questions doctrine, a legal doctrine that was largely invented by Republicans on the federal judiciary and which has no grounding in either constitutional text or any text of any statute. There's a, I mean, you know, that that's not biased. Oh, no, CBS News would never print anything misleading or dishonest. Now, Fox News, you know how they are. No, but they're in the, they're in the capitalist business. They're in the, the gin up the news business. They allow these nuts like Tucker and, and Jesse Waters and, uh, you know, they, they'll, 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 um, they'll sprinkle a Brett Bear in there occasionally to give you some semblance of reason or rationale. But no, Fox is the outlier. Fox is the, that's, that's the whack jobs and the nuts on the right. You got to go to CBS News to hear things like, um, while this program is clearly authorized by federal law permitting the Secretary of Education, um, its only failure, or it's unlikely to survive contact with a Supreme Court nominate or dominated by Republican appointees. This is so interesting. The reason why at least one of these lawsuits is likely to end badly for student borrowers is something known as the major questions doctrine, a legal doctrine that was largely invented by Republicans on the federal judiciary. I mean, nothing could be more true than that, right? I mean, there's no bias in uh, that. There's there's no leaning in that. I mean, that's CBS News doing their job, right? I mean, that, that's them trying to report as best they know how, as accurate as can be. No, their job to is to point anything Republican in a negative light. It's and that's propaganda, how they're, That's how they're writing their story. It's propaganda. And, and, and to try to insinuate that Fox News is the one network in America that has been found to be, you know, liable of or, or charged with, uh, with misleading its viewers, CBS News does it every day. The only, the only chance the student, le- student debt forgiveness program has, a, the only chance it has to make, through, make its way through the court is for nobody to have any standing. Now, these are state cases. Remember the individual from Indiana. He hadn't filed charges yet. Remember the guy who um, borrowed money, worked in a distressed economic situation, and as part of this contract, it was, we will pay your debt back. When they paid his debt back because he went to teach or work in uh, probably a rural area, uh, weren't able to attract the kind of teachers or, or accountants or whatever, whatever he was doing. I mean, that was part of his bargain. That was part of his deal. He went to work in, in, a, in an economically distressed area. They paid off his student debt. He gets a bill for the taxes on the debt forgiven. And in this program, in this particular Heroes Act, there is no tax consequence. So we believe he has standing. Now, I'm not sure if Nebraska does. I'm not sure if these other um, adjoining states do. Um, the Department of Education versus Brown, I, I don't know as much about that case as I do the Biden versus Nebraska state, uh, Nebraska case. But um, 
But, I mean, CBS News is basically saying the only reason that Joe Biden will not be allowed to pay off $10,000 worth of everybody's student debt is those damn Republicans and this Republican-dominated court and this major questions doctrine that was largely invented by Republicans in the federal judiciary. It's absurd. Joe Biden has no executive authority to do this. None. Zero. Now, the courts have been very kind to constitutional authority by an executive. They have really allowed presidents to overreach. I mean, a thick pen in the day would always talk about these presidential wars, these executive wars, um, the president's broad discretion, ever-growing um, power. But, but, but I don't know. Yesterday, it kind of irked me a bit for Jeff to suggest that Fox is an outlier in trying to paint a certain picture a certain way. Every media does it today. Every media, and you got to be real ah, coy about how you sort through who's telling you the truth and who is not. What I normally do is find an article that refers to another article that refers to another article, and, uh, and somewhere in there is a nugget of truth here, a nugget of truth there, a nugget of truth over, over here. But when I asked Jeff, I had to pick on Jeff a, a bit today, but when I asked Jeff yesterday who he trusted, uh, I never got an answer. I just never, I mean, does he trust CBS News? Because CBS News basically said that the president should have no problem here and wouldn't have any problem here if it weren't for this um, Republican-dominated court that will not abide by the Constitution and this crazy invention by Republican legislators that affected the federal judiciary with the major questions doctrine. So CBS is, excuse me, Fox News will lie to you through their teeth. That's CBS News. I mean, every chance they get to tell it like it is and shoot you straight, you remember the guy, Rev, and that's the way it is, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Monday, August 16th, 1975. Walter. This ain't 1975 anymore. I'll assure you of that. 843-661-0937. Back in just a few. A student goes into a bank. He tells the personal loan banker, I want to borrow $7,500 a year for the next four or five years. That's at least 30000 over time, the banker says. Personal loans have a 10% interest factor. For my loan, says the student, I need an interest rate close to a home mortgage, you know, 6% or so. Also, I don't want to be charged interest for the first four or five years on this loan. The banker asks, how long would this loan be for? I want a 20-year payoff after graduation, maybe a little shorter. The banker then asks, do you have any collateral assets to secure the loan? No collateral, but I promise to pay it off when I get a job. The banker is incredulous. Anything else you want to tell me about your plans, young person? Um, Yes, says the student. There's a 10% chance that I will totally default in the first year and a 30% chance that I won't finish my degree. And if I may default a few times and that I may default a few times paying off my loan, the student is not finished. In case of low earnings, I want you to adjust the new payment amount to 5% of my disposable income. If I miss a payment, you won't compound that interest either. The banker is unable to speak for a moment. Fully recovering his voice, he says, what do you mean by disposable income? Oh, it's simple, says the student. I subtract $2,200 from my monthly salary, and then I pay 5% of what is left. The student pauses. Then if I qualify and pay for 20 years, I want a loan forgiveness option on the balance. The banker is weak, but ask anything else you want for this loan? Uh, Well, I may not be able to get a job for the first year salary more than my total student loan. The banker asks, the university approved your application based on good grades and test scores, right? The student looks condescending. No, it's all open admissions. 
what will your degree in uh, be in the banker inquires? I'll know more for sure after two years, the student admits. I need to find my passion. Of course, there's a 50% chance my job won't be in a major and I'll probably be underemployed. Why do you come to our bank, the banker adds? You will never pay this loan off with those terms. The student replies, I wanted to see who had the best rates for student loan. And if I go through a bank, I might get into a credit card as well. My current one is maxed out. So the banker says, I can't waive compounding interest on your $30,000 loan. The payoff amount will be $35,000 or more by the time you graduate. Even at a 6% rate, you have 20 years of payments at $250 a month. If you only pay a 5% of your disposable income, you'll need to be earning more than $5,000 a month to ever pay it off. Where will the bank get the money to satisfy the remaining balance? The student nods, thanks, and then says, that sounds good to me. Let's, where do I sign? The banker says, son, ma'am, I can't loan you a dime. You'll need to have to go to the federal student loan program. I mean, in essence, that's what we've done, guys. We have created one of the most absurd, absurd financing models in the history of mankind. And, and one of the most um, obvious absurdities of this finance model is guess who's on the hook? I mean, it's not the banker. It's not the student. At the end of the day, we, the people, are no longer the guarantor of the debt. We are the issuer of the debt. In the Obamacare legislation, if you really read the fine print, uh, imagine this. I mean, the government disguising one piece of legislation as if there weren't enough issues with Obamacare, they decided to include as part of the legislation that the government is no longer the guarantor of the debt, but rather the issuer of the debt. So when you're talking about, well, I don't want to be a part of paying off student debt. I don't want to be a part of, I don't want to sign a, I don't want to co-sign a note for somebody to borrow the money. No, you didn't co-sign the note. You are now the banker. You own the debt. You are not guaranteeing the debt. You own the debt. You are, as an American taxpayer, the banker. For about 60, uh, probably about 90% of all student debt issued in America, one half of that is in default deferment or some delayed uh, payment program. And, uh, you know, Biden in his infinite wisdom wants to go to the Supreme Court and get permission to forgive somewhere between ten dollars and $20,000 of student debt. Um, that creates an even bigger deficit, an even bigger hole in the budget. Um, uh, we, we argued last week a little bit, uh, excuse me, it might have been earlier this week about the housing market. And, um, and the student debt fiasco that we're headed um, ever closer to. I don't know the answer to this. I really don't. I'll go back to something I said about Clemson and Florida State. Uh, you can have PowerPoint after PowerPoint. At the end of the day, the ACC needs football games with 3 million people watching. Uh, but that is, in a nutshell, the problem. The Big Ten has about 3 million people watching every game. The SEC has about 3 million people watching every game. FSU has about 3 million watching every game. Clemson has about 3 million watching every game. Nobody else in their league does. So it's not that complicated. As complicated as we like to try and make it, it's not that complicated. Here's the problem with higher education. There are about 2, 2.5 million kids going to college every year that have no business going to college, period. But, but the model requires, excuse me, the system we've built requires that many kids going to that many colleges, incurring that much debt because you are not the guarantor any longer. You, my friends, are the banker. So on your, uh, when somebody says your occupation, you can put, I am a plumber and a banker. I'm a radio <laughs> shows and a banker. I'm a truck driver and, 
and a banker. And when somebody challenges you, what, what do you mean you're a banker? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm banking $1.5 trillion in student debt, one half of which is in default deferment or some delayed uh, payment program. 843, I say that with a high degree of sarcasm, but everything I said is 100% accurate. It's, it's, it's not woke. It's not politically correct for someone to say that two and a half million people are going to college who have no business going to college. But let me reiterate for clarity's sake. You ready? Two and a half million kids are going to college who don't need to be going to college. They need to be joining the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. I don't know if you saw this or not. We're having the worst year we've ever had in recruiting men and women to join the armed forces. The worst year we've ever had in trying to engage young people and convincing them that this military career is very worthwhile. Now, I'm interested in the reasons. Have we gotten to a point now that more and more young people realize how imperialistic some of the American military industrial complex have become and how if you're not careful, you end up in Ukraine, you end up in Afghanistan, you end up in Iraq, you end up in Iran, and you scratch your head and wonder, am I here because American security is at risk? Or am I here because Raytheon gave some congressman a bunch of money at a fundraiser? I do. I mean, I wonder if American, the men and women who consider the military an alternative, are they reading the Wall Street Journal, trying to better understand why would I do this? Back in a minute. Welcome back. 843-661-0937. Our number, a couple of callers are on the phone. Let's go there. Sam in Cross Hill. Good morning, Sam. Hey, good morning, uh, fellas. Uh, enjoying the show this morning. I've got two observations, and I have one uh, question that, uh, that I want to uh, seek the, I'm seeking the answer for. First thing uh, is there's hope. There's some hope for a return to sanity. I heard earlier before your show came on uh, that Lori Lightfoot in Chicago has not made the runoff. So that's welcome news for me anyway, uh, who's very tired of having to watch her silliness. The second thing is uh, several years ago, uh, on occasion, I had the opportunity to go down to 26 into Charleston, and there's a big billboard that was down there promoting the College of Charleston, and it said basically, it wound up saying, uh, you know, come to the College of Charleston where every student minors in history, which I thought was very creative. And I just want to say that um, I really enjoy Dr. Bolt. Uh, and uh, the history that he brings to the station. Ken, you ask him such good questions, and I, I truly wish, you know, if I had it to do all over again, that I could have had him in a history class. I believe I would have tried to have taken every class that he offered. And also, I appreciate um, the law, uh, the lawyers that you're bringing in to help with the, the Murdoch analysis and whatever. So I would say that uh, you guys were to look into, after a certain amount of time spent listening, uh, consider issuing your loyal listeners maybe an associate's degree in history and the law. <laughs> and that's what I'm really calling about, Ken, because you're talking about standing. And, you know, if I remember back in the 2020 elections, you know, there were a lot of suits that were brought in a state uh, that was questioning the, um, um, the, the you know, the, the election practices that they were using. And most of the courts threw these things out, and the evidence was never, ever been able to get heard because of lack of standing. So, Professor Ard, uh, I would like for you to 
enlighten us with the uh, Pamplico law with respect to standing. What does that mean? I believe I have standing as a U.S. taxpayer if debt is being forgiven uh, that I'm going to have to bear the, 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 the you know, the, ultimately the, in some way the cost of. So anyway, what does standing mean, Professor Ard? <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> he says a bit sarcastically. Okay, I want, I want to tackle a couple of things he talked about. Um, Patrick McLaughlin will be with us in about 50 minutes. He's agreed to come on at 8.05 this morning. Um, Patrick has kept tabs on this um, Murdoch trial closer than I have. And he's a lawyer, so we understand some of the processes and procedures. And he'll be with us at about, I think he's coming in at 8.05 today to um, analyze what has happened since last he was here. And I think um, I think that was Thursday. Um, I want to go back to Dr. Bolt real quick. Because I do believe, and Rev, I mean, Rev knows I'm not a technocrat. Don't profess to be. I'm not interested in. That's not my skill set. But I think he said I'm a pretty good plunderer. So as I plunder around the world looking for answers, as most of us do, um, and I share the sentiment about Lightfoot, I just don't know how much better the mayor of Chicago is going to be than than Lightfoot. I guess he's inferring can't be any worse, and I get that. That would be a reasonable uh, position to hold. I'm just impressed the voters in Chicago finally decided to do something. Well, I mean, who did they vote for, though? Right. I mean, we the, don't the, yet the, to be well, determined, right? The devil you know, and the devil you don't know. I'm not, you know, once again, um, anything would be an improvement over Lightfoot. But I want to go to Dr. Boulder, uh, because yesterday I was plundering. And my intent is always to couch things and frame things with him in a historical perspective. And I've read a lot about the Native Americans. I've read a lot about the Revolutionary War. I've read a lot about the War of 1812. Um, Jeff, I didn't, you know, listen to about it on Fox News. I got a trustworthy source like the New York Times or Wall Street Journal or, or Washington Post to, you know, educate me on what happened to the War of 1812, uh, the Spanish-American War. Um, the Canadians fought with the British. Davy was talking about that um, yesterday. Native Americans, by and large, fought with the British. The one point I wanted to make yesterday is we are real quick as Americans to believe that we're the angels in these affairs. Remember the, the point I've tried to make several days in a row about relative good, relative bad. And and in some weird way, the Lindsey Grahams of the world, um, the Mitch McConnells of the world are trying to convince we, the people, that our side never gets it wrong. And, and what our side did in relation to Native Americans was about what Russians are doing, or we've accused Russians to do um, in the last, what, 100 years? Those damn expansionist Russians. But I mean, they're trying to take over territory again. Now, there's a difference in a sovereign nation and what we did, but we were still very intentionally expansionist in nature in our early American history. We wanted a bigger nation. We wanted to conquer some of these other territories, and, you know, the Native Americans paid the price. Now, now, did they make a misjudgment by siding with the British? Of course they did. There's no doubt about that. But but the, the point I'm trying to make is, guys, in every situation of my life, there's relative good, relative bad. What One of the examples we've used in the Murdoch trial is when a couple of people have appeared, it looks like he is genuinely laughing at, but because he likes that guy. Remember the, the, the guy that fed the dogs? I mean, there, there was a moment there that, and Patrick talked a little bit about this, it, was, it, it appeared to be authentic and real and genuine. Some of the tears appear to be real. Now, some don't, but some of the p- tears do appear. Some of the anxiety seems to be real. And, and the illustration, and then I use the example of a, um, a serial killer on death row 
befriending and feeding a cat, one of these stray cats. You've seen the story before. The guy that killed 30 people is giving, uh, you know, one-tenth of his sandwich to some stray cat uh, who's um, kind of, you know, wandered on the, the prison yard. So, so, so I just believe that in every example in our, in our human history, there, good and bad is relative. I believe that America's relatively good. I think we've done overwhelmingly good things on behalf of the people of the world. I think the world is a better place because of what happened to the Revolutionary War and how we've conducted ourselves by and large since then. But we ain't got everything right. And I think when, when Dr. Boltz talks about, talked about what we did to the Native Americans, it, it, it's a little bit similar to what the Russians are doing in Ukraine. So, so the point I wanted to make is don't believe that we're angels and they're devils because we aren't and they ain't. Every Russian concern is not baseless. Every Chinese issue is not without foundation. Do I believe that China and Russia have contributed to the betterment of mankind as much as the United States of America? No. I think we're far more relatively good than they are. But we ain't perfect. And sometimes these neoconservatives and American imperialists are trying to convince we, the people, that we're perfect. We have a lot of issues in our country. We have a lot of situations that we have to deal with. And Dr. Bolt basically agreed that you could compare some of what we did early in our nation's history with what Russia is doing in Ukraine um, today. Standing from this, as far as I'm concerned, means there's a, um, a legitimate reason to have a lawsuit. Have you been financially harmed? In other words, if Dave Baker's mad at me, but Dave doesn't, I mean, Dave's mad at me because of something that happened, but Dave has not been disadvantaged by what happened. It just made him mad. Uh, Rev doesn't have any standing here. I mean, I guess you get an abstract, you know, what is defamation? What is slander? Some of those abstract meanings, and they're not abstract meanings, but they're, they're abstract values and degrees and proportion, proportionalities of what I did to slander Dave Baker. But my, my unofficial interpretation of standing um, is, you know, do I have a reason to bring the suit? And I think there are many, many laws that govern. Do I have a reason uh, to bring the suit or not? Uh, we've always believed, and I think I've been pretty consistent in this, that the problem with the executive privilege of the president, who has standing to say he can't do that? Now, I believe the guy in Indiana has standing. I mean, I do. I sincerely believe that that is a – he has been disenfranchised disproportionately. 14th Amendment, equal protection under the law. I mean, I, I think that's standing. Um, he was treated differently than anybody else has. Remember Jay George said Friday, the Yankee tax, making national news now, um, the Yankee tax, in other words, a $250 fee um, twice if you move here from um, somewhere else, uh, you got to pay $500. Um, I don't think that will pass the mustard. I, I think somebody will have standing in court to say, I'm being treated differently and, um, and they're violating my 14th Amendment, my, right, my equal protection under under the law. And once again, I'm not a lawyer, and I, I may try to get Patrick to explain that from a legal perspective, but um, you handed a lot of things my way, and I hope I did the best <laughs> I know how to try and address and answer uh, the concerns I had or the answers of the concerns the caller had. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Bill in Camden. Hello, you're on the air. Good morning, guys. I'm calling you from my uh, AMless radio Tesla, but uh, I wanted to address the Army and military in general with the drop in membership. I think it's a lot simpler. I think really today's young folk 
are a lot lazier and not willing to put in the effort that it takes to be in the military. And everything is given to them for free. I don't disagree with that. I, I don't disagree with that at all. And I, in fact, I look at um, some of the realities and practicalities of the military. Um, I mean, once again, I'm not in the military. I read a lot about it. It seems to me there, there's a big issue with um, can't pass a drug test, can't pass an aptitude test, and can't pass physical fitness test. But I mean, those are three prerequisites. We've loosened, um, we, we, we've lessened the stringency on the um, physical fitness test. Uh, really and truly, if you aren't obese, and I'm talking about clinically obese, you could probably pass um, the test. I don't want to go into details about who said this and when and where now, but there's a certain member of law enforcement that told me recently the biggest issue they're having is the physical fitness part of it. And it's not like you're asking somebody to be a, you know, a, a, an Ecuadorian marathoner, you know, or, or, or a Kenyan running a, four, you know, three minute 50 uh, second mile. I mean, it's just, you know, you got to be able to run from here to there in, in a day. And then you can't do, you can't do that. Um, you want to talk about the epidemic of all epidemics, the one that cost America the most money. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. You got a, um, you got a, a COVID pandemic. You've got a, um, you know, I, I think you're having a humanitarian issue crisis on the, on the Southern border, but obesity. I mean, when you funnel a lot of America's problems back to what our, one of the central features of our issues, I think obesity is a big part of that childhood obesity, adolescent obesity, adult obesity. Um, the average American female weighs about what the average American male weighed, you know, 50 years ago, I'm rounding off here. Um, no pun intended, but not by much. Um, and I, you know, I don't know whose fault that is. I do. Um, I mean, when I decided in 2004, after my father passed away to take much better care of myself, um, I began reading about high fructose corn syrup and, you know, carbs and proteins and all these other sorts of things. We live in a very, um, carbohydrate rich environment. I'll just, I'll just say that with high fructose corn syrup, some of the additives, some of the artificial ingredients of food, um, food's gotten real expensive. It's kind of, um, uh, Rev, a lot of the quandary is socioeconomically obesity affects poor people more than it does people who have done fairly well to become a little more affluent. But but the devil in the details is uh, kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, is those who are socioeconomically challenged normally can't buy the healthier foods because the healthier foods is expensive. I mean, I, I'm a socialist libertarian. I'll rear my socialist head for a second. I think people who are willing and able to take better care of themselves should be incentivized in some way, shape, or form. Is that a voucher to buy healthier food? I don't know. I mean, here's a box of ice cream sandwiches, and here's a um, you know, some oranges and bananas, and so some, you know what I mean. I mean, better choices, and um, and it seems to me we incentivize the not so good choice over the um, over the better choice. I I read something. I'll try to find that during the next break about food stamps, and um, you know, if we indeed begin um, seriously considering some of the cuts necessary to the entitlement programs, what we'll have to do to food stamps and what will happen to Walmart, to Kroger, to some of the major, major uh, food line would be another big grocery store. If I'm not mistaken, I don't want to misspeak. Where to call? Let's yeah. go to the phone. I want to get that document. I think you'd find that interesting as we talk about, you know, why you can't get in the military. The, the biggest reason is obesity. I mean, it's physical fitness. Uh, another big reason is can't pass a drug test. And another reason is there's this, um, 
there's this aptitude test that is uh that is required. Uh, I think as you know, what color is the little red schoolhouse and who's buried in Grant's tomb? I think mm. you got to get one of those two right, <laughs> and a certain percentage of our population um, can't get either of those right. Let's go to the phone. Bobby in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hey, Bobby. Good morning, gentlemen. And speaking on that very same point, the other part they're not telling you is that the military has been made woke by Obama-era policies that have turned it from defense to social engineering. But on to the point of the food and so forth, we have changed the food pyramid over the past 50, 60 years, you could say, to incentivize what one of my very good friends, a very well-renowned dancer who lives in Lexington, calls, well, they're gonna, they use customers, but I'm going to use the NATO alphabet here, chemical Sierra storms. All the food that's been popping up on TV everywhere and the government encourages is full of chemical Sierra storms, such as the uh, aspartame in our diet sodas and high fructose corn syrup you find everywhere and all the refined sugar what ha and why aren't people even looking at the fact that the government has disincentivized real food in favor of chemical junk well explain thank you for the call appreciate it i mean i live that every day I mean, I try to make better choices. Now, on the weekend, I'm a bit of a glutton. I'll admit that. Saturdays and Sundays, watching a ball game, watching a race, I don't behave as well as I do Monday through Friday. Um, but, but here's where the government touches it. Um, during COVID, we expanded uh, $100 billion in extra assistance in the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. That's food stamps, in essence. Um, and we went from food and beverage retail sales equaling about 7.1% of all, and I'm talking about Walmart, Dollar General, Family Dollar, Kroger. I'm going to imagine this now, guys. Walmart, Dollar General, Family Dollar, and Kroger were getting about 7.1% of their revenue from food stamps. During the pandemic, it went to 12.3%. A family of three prior to COVID were getting $592 a month in food stamp benefit. Since COVID, they've been getting $759 a month in food stamp uh, benefit. That ends this month. Um, there, there will be a $3 billion a month um, decline in the amount of food stamp revenue spent in some of the retail grocers. In fact, I read a statement by Warren Buffett at Berkshire Hathaway that he was a little lukewarm on Walmart, Dollar General, Family Dollar, and Kroger because once again, um, over 12 point, I mean, that, that's a staggering statistic to me, guys. In other words, of those companies that I just named, Walmart, Dollar General, Family Dollar, Kroger, um, before the pandemic, 7.1% of their revenue was food stamps. Since the pandemic, it's gone to 12.3% of their revenue because once $100 billion in extra benefit, um, if you're a wife, a husband, and a kid, you went from getting five ninety two to seven fifty nine. I just wonder how many protein bars and bananas were bought with that money, or how many slabs of bacon and you know something else that ain't the best in the world for you. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Take a break. Back in just a few. You know some of the response to COVID 
or things that we're beginning to find out about. I mean, we talked yesterday, I think extensively, uh, I don't know if you saw this or not, but Christopher Ray of the FBI is agreeing with what the energy department is saying. And yesterday we kind of, um, I mean, I think it's best we can do Rev explained why would the U S department of energy be weighing in on an investigation into the origins of COVID. Um, that sounded odd to me until I read that the Lawrence Livermore national laboratory is a part of the U S department of energy and their specialty for years and years and years and years has been to track and mitigate, um, the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, um, kind of a subspecialty in the study of biological weapons, such as a, such as a virus. So that would stand to reason, um, it, it, a lot of bioscience, biotechnology, bioterrorism, uh, molecular biologists are part of that. Uh, it really comes down to genome sequencing. Uh, I won't embarrass myself and try to explain, but but from what I've gathered, the um, the investigating into the genome sequencing and the, um, uh, the the design of the virus, and I'm talking about the molecular design of the virus, has led the Department of Energy and now the FBI to believe that it was indeed a lab leak at the, um, as John Stewart said, you know, the, the laboratory that shared the name of the virus. Um, we're not armchair quarterbacking there. We're not, uh, we're not Monday morning second guessing by any um, stretch. We were always bothered by how quick Fauci said he was sure this virus came from a, from a wet market. Now, the wild card in all of this is gain-of-function research. There are two questions that still have to be answered. I think we've answered that it was not a, a naturally mutated virus, but rather one that originated in a lab as part of gain-of-function research. Here's the question that I think Fauci deserves, or Fauci owes an answer to the American people. Was it some of the gain-of-function research that the American government was funding? Now, now remember, he kind of parsed words and said, it depends on what the definition of is is. Now, Fauci has one luxury um, in speaking to most people, how many of you know bioscience? How many of you know biotechnology? How many of you know bioterrorism? How many of you know molecular biology or genome sequencing? Nothing, not but a I thing. Know, no, that's right. Nothing, not a thing. Uh, organic farming included <laughs> in that. But 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 I think he owes the American people a um, an appearance before someone who does. And I'm not saying Rand Paul's the right guy because Rand Paul's not a virologist. He's not an epidemiologist. He's an eye doctor. He, what is an optometrist, if I'm not mistaken, might be an ophthalmologist. But anyway, he's one or the other. And um, and I don't know how versed Rand Paul could become. I mean, he would know more than we know just from having a background in biology and understanding of um, of medicine. But, but, but the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory provided, from what I'm understanding, the FBI with its full and detailed report. And the FBI said, yes, this makes perfect sense as far as they're concerned. In fact, Christopher Ray said... There's been a fairly long-standing consensus amongst the FBI in believing that it was, um, you know, a lab leak. It happened in a in a virology lab. But here's the here's the question that I think we have to consider: Did the Chinese realize that a lab leak had occurred and someone was infected with a novel virus, a highly contagious, somewhat deadly novel virus? Did they intentionally? put that person or those people on a plane, send them to LAX, send them to LaGuardia in, in New York. We don't know the answer to that. And I don't know that we'll never, ever know the answer to that. But I don't give the Chinese much benefit of the doubt. 
I'm sorry, I just don't. I give the Chinese less benefit of the doubt than I do the Russians. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Every Russian claim is not baseless. Every Chinese concern is not without foundation. But in the grand scale of relative good, relative bad, I find them to be highly untrustworthy, to say um, the least. But but that's um, I mean that that's you think about what we did to the economy in regards to COVID. I mean, you think about the shutdowns, the lockdowns, the mask wearing. I mean, there, there are seven-year-old kids in America today that have spent half their life wearing a mask. I mean, it's fairly normal to them. And it, the, the absurdity of that, I still see people every day, as you do, wearing masks in cars by themselves. I mean, I, you know, I don't get that, but it's their life. I mean, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. If it makes them happy, then more power, more power to them. I, I do, you know, utter something under my breath when I, de- when I see that um, take place. But there's so many other things that we didn't pay attention to. I mean, it's easy to pay attention to. I mean, my wife's a hairdresser. The government basically said, you can't go to work and earn a living. Why? Because we said so. Based on what? Based on our analysis. What is your analysis? It's highly um, contagious and highly deadly. Well, I mean, we know now it is highly contagious. It is not very deadly at all, especially to people under the age of, what, 50 uh, probably under the age of 60, um, you have a 99.5% chance of getting back to normal. There's only a, a percent or two chance that you go to the hospital. We're now seeing a lot of research that says the long COVID has been significantly overstated. And, and, and it's not that we made a mistake in the name of being too cautious and another mistake in the name of being uh, less cautious than we should have been. Every decision we made was in the name of being more cautious. And every time we made a decision in the name of being more cautious, somebody got rich. You know, the vaccine mandates, the lockdowns, the shutdowns. I mean, why did Walmart shut down? With all due respect, why was Target allowed to stay open and some of the mom and pops weren't? Why were hairdressers not allowed to go to work, but government agencies um, who stayed home got paid? I mean, there's so much in imbalance in, in our response to this. And when I read this story about uh, food stamps. How many of you knew that? How many of you knew that as part of the COVID relief plan or COVID reaction plan, we increased assistance from about $592 a month, to $759 a month for mom, dad, and the kid. I mean, I didn't know that. I knew that we had uh, increased the benefit in the SNAP plan, the supplemental nutrition assistance. Plan. We don't call them food stamps because that's insulting, right? I mean, it's welfare. Who wants to be on welfare? I'm not on welfare. What are you? I'm SNAP. What do you mean you're SNAP? I'm, I'm the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. I mean, the government's buying you food. I mean, you're not buying your own food. The taxpayers are buying your food for you. I mean, how was that not welfare? Of course it's welfare. I mean, the absurdity of calling it anything but welfare. I mean, when, when, when you are eating food that you didn't buy because somebody else bought it, I mean, I don't know the technical definition of welfare, but that's pretty damn close as far as I'm concerned. But um, but in March 2020, we initiated um, that $100 billion expansion this month. I mean, today's the first day of March. That's why this um, article is kind of interesting um, to me. And, and I, I just think that's a staggering as a business guy. Uh, percentages matter to me. And Walmart Dollar General Family Dollar Kroger, before the pandemic, we're getting about 7.1% of their revenue from the SNAP program. It went from 7.1 to 12.3. So you would expect Walmart, Dollar General, Family Dollar, and Kroger 
to have good quarter after good quarter after good quarter because the government, in essence, is subsidizing uh, the purchasing of their product, right? I mean, if I've got if I've got a uh, voucher and that voucher allows me every month to buy $592 worth of qualified expenditure, whatever that is. I mean, I don't know what qualifies and what doesn't. I mean, we know the story, Reb. I know liberals don't believe this, but we know the stories of men and women who get a, uh, a you know, a, a food stamp card or food stamp coupons, and they'll trade them in for cigarettes. They'll trade them in for booze. They'll trade them in for something other than, in other words, um, I've got $100 worth of food stamps. I'll give you the $100 worth of food stamps if you buy me $50 worth of cigarettes, $50 worth of booze. At least give the government um, some credit. There were certain exemptions they placed on the uh, the plan of the program. And I'm not saying that people don't need help. I mean, I, I would never deny that we need some sort of system in place for when people, you know, fall on hard times. I think we've all agreed that when people fall through the cracks, we hope that there's an interest in standing in the gap there and trying to, and I guess, you know, the, even those of us who don't care much for government, we accept that. I mean, you can't, I mean, is the, is the church going to do it nationwide? Is the, um, is the boys club going to do it nationwide? I mean, these charitable organizations have specific tasks, but they have enormous limitations. The government has the ability to print money. Therefore, they don't have the same limitations as most, um, other organizations do. So, um, I mean, if you're, if you're investing for a living, I would probably be a little bearish on Walmart dollar, general family dollar and Kroger moving forward because they're, you got to believe their revenue number will go back to some uh, pre-COVID level, and that was 7.1%. That's a big jump. I mean, that's a, I mean I, I'm, I'm looking as a business guy. From 7.1% of my sales in one category to 12.3% of my sales in another category because some government program subsidized uh, the purchase of that product or, or that good. I want to shift gears. We've not talked about this person or this situation in in a couple of weeks. John Fetterman, Democrat senator from Pennsylvania. Uh, there's an article yesterday on News Nation where a spokesperson for the Pennsylvania senator um, says that he is on a path to recovery. Uh, remember, he checked himself into a hospital. He had he had the stroke. I mean, he was nowhere near able to go be an effective member of the Senate. But the people of Pennsylvania voted for him anyway. Uh, well, they also voted for a dead man. So, you know, that's not. He was the second most unlikely person to get elected. <laughs> the most unlikely was somebody who was no longer with us. So only in Pennsylvania can voting harvesting, um, so some of the other shenanigans that go on in Philadelphia, some of the metro areas around Philadelphia, a man with a stroke won and a dead man won. Well, now the man with a stroke is not able to perform the duties of a U.S. Senator. The, the two most important things you need to be able to do as a politician, I can vouch for this in the first person, is to speak and listen. I mean, obviously, you got to read, you got to retain, you got to adjust, you got to um, inquire, you got to explore. But there are a lot of things you got to do. But at the core of everything required for you to be an effective politician, it is essential, it is critical, it is paramount that you're able to listen and to speak, to communicate with people. When John Fetterman got to Pennsylvania, he did not have the ability to listen or speak. He was emotionally incoherent. 
I mean, in all honesty, I mean, he was, as a U.S. senator, he was incapacitated. He had no ability to, to do the job. Now, now, could he have stood behind, you know, a computer and, and printed something out? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know how his motor skills have been affected as a result of his stroke. But my anger and resentment is not at John Fetterman. It is that the people who say they love him that allowed him to continue the quest to be a U.S. senator. The bizarre nature of a political party believing that power is that important. I mean, I understand political power. I get the majority beats the minority. I mean, the, the Senate is controlled by the Democrats. The House is controlled by, but at some point in time, doesn't humanity have to enter the equation? At some point in time, don't you look at this big goofball and say, hey, dude, I'm not going to let you make a fool of yourself. It's a little bit like the boxing match where the, the trainer throws their towel in. I mean, the, the, the boxer's trained to fight till his death. I mean, that's almost, there, there's something instinctive about a boxer. I mean, anybody that walks into a ring with the intent of hitting another man, knowing they have the intent to hit you, I mean, that's, that's pretty wild anyway, right? I mean, that, that's not a long line. I mean, that would be a pretty short line. Now, the line of people who like to watch that is an extremely long line because we all have this, I don't know, primitive element about uh, all of our DNA and makeup and genetic quantifiers. But, but, but the line to go in that ring is a fairly short line. So, so Fetterman gets in the ring, and it's obvious he has no business in the ring. It's obvious he has no ability to compete in the ring, and nobody threw the towel. Nobody that says they love this man said, John, I can't watch you do this to yourself. So he doesn't have the ability to communicate. He can't listen. He can't speak. He goes to Washington. He's expected to do a job because he was asked by the voters of Pennsylvania to go do the job. And then he ends up being clinically depressed. And he's at Walter Reed Medical Facility as we speak. And, and once again, the person who said he's on a path to recovery still expects him to be away from the Senate for weeks. Is there, I mean, it wasn't days, it wasn't hours, it was weeks. What does that mean? That's very open-ended. Is that two weeks? Is that five weeks? Is that 20 weeks? And here, here are the comments. You ready? And this is Federman's communications director. We understand the intense interest in John's status and especially appreciate the flood of well-wishers. However, as we have said, this will be a weeks-long process and while we will be sure to keep folks updated as it progresses, this is all there is to give by way of an update. So at what point do other members of the Senate have a right to say the guy's not qualified to do the job? I mean, I, I host a radio show. Every now and then, I take a day off. I mean, we do during Christmas. We do, do, we do during July the 4th. We say we go charge our batteries. We get rejuvenated. And we're back doing the job again. If something were to happen today, if my wife were to call me in the next 20 minutes and said, I've been in a terrible automobile accident, I need you to be at the hospital with me, I would leave. And we would do whatever we had to do to make it work for however long it took to make it work. That was an accident. We didn't see that coming. Who didn't see this coming? Who didn't watch John Fetterman debate Dr. Oz and realize that he was so unable or unable to go to the Senate and represent the people of Pennsylvania, but they voted for him anyway. And now he is clinically depressed. He may get better. He may not get better. But at what point does the body that we call the United States Senate have an obligation to the people of America to say, 
you know, w- without fear of retribution or or some sort of um sanction that, hey, Pennsylvania needs to send somebody else here. I mean, the governor of Pennsylvania needs to call for a special election. What what disqualifier is there? I don't know. I mean, they voted for a dead man. And now having a, a, you know, an election to replace the dead, the dead man, they also voted for someone who was completely and totally and obviously unable to perform the job of being a U.S. senator. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. We spent the majority of the week, as you would imagine, fellow members of Mensa talking about bioscience and biochemistry and biotechnology, bio... What are you laughing about, Rev? Members of Mensa? Well, I mean, fellow members of Mensa. Okay. I, didn't, I didn't exclude anybody. Okay. Uh, me being a, a member in good standing and our other members of Mensa who listen to the show Molecular Biology and Genome Sequencing talking about the Department of Energy and the um, and the vaccine <laughs> and the and uh, the, the virus. I think John Stewart explained it better than anybody on the Stephen Colbert show. Um, the virus shares the name of the lab. I mean, you got to <laughs> believe the lab had something to do with the virus. But we're going to speak for about um, however long about the uh, the trial that I had become somewhat fixated, infatuated with. Uh, Patrick McLaughlin of the Wakila Law Firm has agreed to come in. I think this is um, third week. Rev, we owe him some money, I think. Um, <laughs> billable hours is how these guys roll. So um, he's got an hour and a half. Two weeks ago, an hour and a half. So maybe an hour last week, an hour long. Will you put that on the tab, yeah, Rev? Sure. So the, we can make sure we get straight with Patrick. The, the invoice is in the mail. <laughs> okay, good deal, good deal. Good morning, sir. Good I'm morning. Here. So good um, morning. I want to start out with a um, kind of a random statement and want you to tell me if I'm of merit or not. I am 100% convinced that Alec Murdoch is the reason his wife and kid are dead. I am not convinced beyond a reasonable doubt i'm being lawyerly here for a second that he pulled the trigger if i'm a member of the jury and that's good enough for me am i doing my job as a juror convicting him of murder despite not being convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that he pulled the trigger is that a reasonable place for a human being not a robot not a vulcan but a human being to land well pursuant to the the way the law is and that they'll be charged the answer would be no right i mean the technical answer yeah if you've got a reasonable doubt that he committed you know the murder that then you should not convict now from a human factor you know how can you say that's wrong i mean listen that that's that's the wild card whenever you go to trial is you don't know what the 12 in the box are gonna do you know you can't predict that um listen anybody who could who can tell you that they know what a jury will do uh, they're somewhere on an island somewhere right now on a beach sipping drinks with little umbrellas in them because they ain't had to work in a long long time crazy things come out of a jury box right i mean that the the unexpected comes out okay here's another statement i want to get your take on um and this may incriminate your profession patrick i ain't been real impressed with anybody Nobody has stood out. I mean, I know Dick Harputlian is a storied lawyer. I mean, there's no question about it. his reputation speaks for itself. You've got um, the state with accomplished um, white-collar lawyers is what you refer to them as. We even had yesterday the AG himself participate in some of the oral arguments. But, but I've not seen a lawyer so compelling that he overwhelms the others. Is that a fair analysis from someone like me well i i think first you have to ask yourself where do you get the um your idea of what a lawyer should be like in a courtroom right matlock that's right to tv 
Hollywood. And the truth of the matter is, is that real trials are not like that. They, they, they are long stretches of being incredibly boring, right? Um, we've seen that certainly in this trial. Um, but, and I think we may have mentioned this maybe when I first came on or something, but the one thing that, that a lot of people don't realize is lawyers don't get to try cases all that often, you know? So it's, it's not like we're trying cases repetitively and we're, we're always sharp and we're always on top of our game because you don't get to try that many cases. You know, I, I, I think I may have told you when the judicial conference was here and we had that panel and I asked them, and they, these were all very aggressive trial lawyers that were on that panel, how many uh, circuit court level uh, jury trials do you try a year? And on average, maybe two, you know? Wow. Yeah. So, so you know, it, you're not going to be wild all the time during trial and, you know, that there's probably a lot of lawyers in that courtroom who aren't in the courtroom in front of juries a whole heck of a lot. Um, but to your point, you know, listen, I, 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 I beat up on him uh, a fair amount, but Alan Wilson did a good job yesterday. He really did. He, he, he absolutely did. And, um, you know, he's, he, he's kind of got a little bit of a, of a handicap there cause he hasn't had to do anything. He's been able to sit back and kind of watch everything go. And he was, you know, to a certain extent, he kind of was like the fresh legs off the bench at the end of a game. But he is a politician. Politicians public speak fairly regularly. That helps you in the courtroom, right? Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. And, and you saw, listen, listen, but for whatever uh, issues anyone may have with Alan, he's a likable guy. He is. I mean, he, he, he is a likable guy and you know, it's, if you're ever in a room with him, you, you're going to get along with him. And, uh, and that came across yesterday. And he, he, listen, he did a good job. And in fact, um, I think he ought to take part of the close. Interesting. No guts, so, no glory. Yeah, well, glory I, I, right? I, read, I read your tweet. So let's get to the heart of the matter. Have, have we moved the ball any? I mean, if, if, if most people, and I, and I think I'm in a reasonable position, I think I have landed, I am convinced beyond a doubt that he's the reason, for whatever reason. I don't have any idea what the reason is. Is it drugs? Is it money? I, I don't know. I don't have any idea how he got himself in a position that, that we ended up here. But, but I've convinced myself of that. I, once again, I've not convinced myself that he pulled the trigger. Has anybody moved the ball in convincing the jury? Do you think? I mean, nobody knows. You just said that. But do you think anybody's moved the ball in convincing the jury closer or further away from he pulled the trigger or not? Well, I think those people on that jury are just like everybody who's not on that jury, right? And if you think of the example of politics, what decides an election? You've got, you know, 40% are going to be Republicans. Uh, 40% are going to be Democrats. It's that, you know, 20% that's left in the middle, right? So I would imagine uh, those jurors, even though, you know, they're not supposed to deliberate till the judge tells them to, but they're human. They, a lot of them formulated opinion very own in this case. And some of them formulated an opinion that was probably he's guilty. And some of them formulated opinion where it's probably, I don't, they ain't showing me he's guilty. And so the question is, have you convinced any of those people? I don't know. It's those ones who weren't sure yet, you know? And have they been moved? We're going to find out soon. 
you know. When you say soon, how soon? I mean, how how normal? I mean, you got closing arguments on both sides. You got deliberation. I mean, you don't know, but what, what do you expect to happen from here on? Well, I believe that it, it, so after they came out at the end of the day yesterday after the um, the state rested its rebuttal arguments, and I think they're going to do the Moselle trip viewing this morning, and then they I believe they're going to charge and you know do closings and chargings. What, what is today. chargings? I know what closings are. What is chargings? All right, so charging is uh, the the law, the the way the court is going to present the law to the jury. And so as you approach the end of a trial, the court will ask both sides to present proposed jury charges. And both sides will present a wealth of proposed jury charges. Uh, the court uh, may take use some of the charges from one side, some of the charges from the other. The uh, court could say, well, I don't like any of y'all's charges. I'm going to use mine. Um, the court can take a little language from here, take a little language from there. Um, and it's, you know, uh, probably one of the, one of our resident judges for a long time, Judge Anderson, um, Ralph King Anderson uh, from here in Florence. Judge Anderson has two very large books uh, that lay out pr- proposed jury charges for both criminal and civil uh, cases and if anybody knows judge anderson they know he can be uh, uh quite verbose <laughs> and um so you can have charges that are incredibly lengthy um and it's sometimes when you watch uh juries get charged you can almost watch the eyes glaze over you know because it is just long it's a long break of the court just reading to them and the question that always comes up is well do they get to take the charges back there with them there's no rule on that. Um, some judges, uh, some judges will send the charges back with the jury when they go to deliberate, just immediately. Uh, some judges will, if the jury asks, may send the charges back. Some judges will not send the charges back. So, um, but anyway, the 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 charges are supposed to be the roadmap for the jury because what the jury is is supposed to be is the fact finder they decide the facts and then what the judge will explain to them is you take those facts you deliberate them you decide them and then you apply those facts to the law as i give it to you and that's how you're supposed to reach your verdict so they'll do that they'll have they'll have charging conference of some type um where who knows how long that could take arguing over charges um and then they will typically the closing arguments come first and then after uh, so in this case the defense has put up evidence and so that means that they lost the right to to last argument so the state will go first then the defense goes and then the state gets a rebuttal close and then traditionally is when the court will close now some judges some judges change that. Some judges I know will, will actually charge beforehand. Um, but most judges are going to charge after that. Okay. It seems to me that Judge Newman, this is a weird word, has been more sympathetic and understanding and compliant with the with the, the state than he has the defense. It seems to me the majority of what the, the state asks for, they get. Now, now, once again, I don't know inbounds and out of bounds. I don't know what's a crazy ask and what's not. But from a... From a, a layman's perspective, Judge Newman has been more friendly to the state than the defense. Your your opinion of that? Well, I mean, listen. You uh, obviously, uh, 
uh, I do criminal defense. You're on the other side of the room. I get it. Sure. So yeah, I I see a lot of rulings, and I go, man, that's you know, boy, that sure was favorable to to the state in this. Um, Listen, there are always judges have a lot of discretion, and judges are always presented with issues where they could go either way. And listen, all judges, you know, they're humans too. Some of them are more sympathetic to the to the state in criminal prosecutions. Uh, some of them aren't. Um, you know, whether or not ha- how you perceive Judge Newman to fall is, you know, a lot is probably a lot based on how you perceive the case as well. You know, I'm sure if if you follow along on social media, you will see the people who thinks Alex is guilty. Uh, they love Judge Newman. You know, the people who think that that they're not proving the case, uh, they're taking issue with Judge Newman's findings. Um, you know, that's just kind of human nature, I guess. The rulings he's made, whether they're friendly to one side or another, has he made a ruling as a trial lawyer that you believe has allowed one side to move the meter or another? I mean, some are incidental. You know, do, do, do we? I mean, I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to take a break now. You know what I mean? I, I don't want to. I don't want to adjourn now. I mean, I get that. But, but has there been a ruling made that sticks out with you that you think may have created an advantage or disadvantage? With one side or another, whether whether it's a ruling with merit or not, has something happened in the done by the judge that that you believe has given one sided advantage over the other? Well, I mean, certainly the the fact that the financial crime stuff came in, um, how that affects what jurors think one way or the other is we don't know. It's going to be up to the jurors, but certainly that was a big thing that it's obvious the state wanted to come in because they spent three weeks arguing that stuff so um that stuff coming in was obviously very significant to the state um it made up a bulk of their presentation um so but whether or not you know we've talked about it before that could that can cut against the state you know there can be people on that jury who are saying yeah we get it he's a liar and a thief and a piece of crap you know but you're get to the meat of the matter did he pull the trigger, and, and, and what do you have to show me he pulled the trigger? Uh, let, let's, let's, let's take a break, Rev. I want to take a first break. I want Patrick to stay with us for another segment, if he will. Um, I want to get back to some of the um, some of the, incriminate, the incriminating evidence, as I perceive it, and some of the, wow, I'm scratching my head wondering why I believed what I did believe. Take a break. Back in just a few. Welcome back. Patrick McLaughlin of the Wakila Law Firm is with us, trying to give his trial lawyer take on what we've seen for the last two and a half years is the um the Murdoch trial. <laughs> Seems like. I mean, it's been a long one. It really and truly has. I'll tell you who has struggled in Florence, as far as I'm concerned. If everybody's doing what I'm doing, the waitresses and restaurants aren't getting the usual tips. I'm eating in my truck <laughs> with my phone on, hooked to the Wi-Fi or what about Bluetooth, trying to listen to everything that goes on. Got a weird question for you, but you're the kind of guy that'll answer. So at some point in time, do you as a defense attorney or a prosecutor identify a member of the jury through body language, through demeanor, through mannerisms that you believe your message resonates with more than the other members of the jury. Sure. Sure. How do you do that without giving away some of your trade secrets? I mean, mean, you're just, uh, you're watching them to see how they're reacting. Now (laughs) I can tell you, unfortunately in my experience, I've often I've often been like, man, they, they're with me. This one right here is with me. This one right here. And then, then you realize at the end of the trial, oops, that was the alternate. <laughs> <laughs> they, they walk out the door gotcha. with the deliberation start. But, but I mean, you can, you can tell when, when people 
you know, listen, people, they give ver visual cues of body language when they are agreeing with you and stuff. And you could certainly tell, um, uh, uh, I had, I had a case one time with, uh, where there was a, a fella, uh, on the jury panel who was obviously not with me <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, had questioned something that we had argued during the trial and like shook his head very visibly. Like, that's not right. That's not right. And, uh, I remember in, in closing, uh, when I was making that argument, you could see him. He wasn't agreeing with that. With that. And I was like, well, you, listen, you, you ain't got it. And I looked him dead in the eye. I said, you ain't got to believe me. The judge is going to charge you on the law. And you're going to hear the judge tell you I'm right. And it was funny. So we, we finished close, and, and then the judge goes to charge the law. Boy, I, I was staring that fella down when the judge did the charge. And it, he got to that part, and he said it. And I saw the guy kind of look at me and look down. <laughs> Of course, he wasn't with me anyway. Well, but but I get that. I mean, that's human energy and human emotion being involved in in one of these trials. To me, last week for two days, the best lawyer in the room was Alec Murdoch. I mean, I really think he acquitted himself. I mean, understanding the pressure and the charges he faces, and I'm not saying whether I believed everything he said or not, but he did appear to be in control of himself, his emotions, um, how he explained himself, how he accounted for. The discrepancies at times he said i lied i mean there's no doubt about it what your opinion of his appearance i listen he he did i don't he did an incredible job of maintaining his composure um and i mean that was rough a day and a half of and just, it was badgering at times of just sitting there and 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 getting beat up i mean that's you know that that was a that that was incredibly tough he he did about as good a job as if you were a defense lawyer and you put your defendant client up there and there's some real questions about whether he did or didn't do it i mean he he did an incredible job i'll put it this way you can see why he was able to to fool so many people for so long and steal so much money he he's he can be charming or and maybe people don't think that was a charming uh um that they was charming to do it, but he can certainly be, he can be convincing. Um, and he can certainly, uh, spin a tail and take you down, take you down the rabbit hole a little bit and oh, get yeah. to talking and, and you forget to what, what the question was, Mr. Waters had asked him. What does, what does the nation, I mean, from your perspective, when you hear Paul, Paul, and you know, I, I told, um, I told Patrick, I think I told Dave, I've told our listeners, I'm suspicious of people who named their homes. I mean, it's yeah, just, I mean, yeah. I'm always like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That, that's, um, that's kind of old South, you know, aristocracy talk. Um, how much of that comes into play, Patrick, that this is a, a prominent family living a, a fairly affluent lifestyle that some of the jury probably knows some of that. Some of the jury probably doesn't know, but, but I mean, how, how much do you as a defense lawyer or a trial lawyer have to account for the perception of your client? Well, it, it, what you bring up is a is a point that it, I noticed right away too, right? I mean, they keep talking about, you know, they're at, they, the defense actually was asking questions. Do y'all call that place, you know, like John Marvin's hunting property? Is that Greenfield? You know, like, well, I don't know if I'd be remind. No. I don't know if I'd be reminding the jury of the the affluent lifestyle that this guy had when the state's entire theory of the case is that affluent lifestyle was about to come crashing down and the majority was ill gotten and that's why he did all this so 
you know, there's a lot of the stuff that came out at trial, uh, even about their, their closeness as a family revolved against, revolved around the ability to afford doing those types of things. Talked a lot about Gamecock tailgates, you know, talked about going golfing, talked about trips to Key West, talked about trips to the Edisto house. Um, but yeah, it, you know, but where you and I are from, we call our properties the house. Oh yeah. Yeah. Ma- maybe the, and maybe the dirt road, maybe the farm, yeah, the maybe, sa- maybe the hunting club, mm-hmm. but we don't name them. No, no, not, not at all. And, and that makes your job as a defense lawyer more difficult. I would imagine they seem to not have embraced it, but they've not shied away from it at all. Well, and those are the little things that, that just people will naturally, you know, I, I'm sure it was natural, like for, for John Marvin, when he tested testified yesterday to get up there and, and and talk about his property and to mention the name of it well when if you're the defense lawyer and you're prepping him on that you're like hey let's uh just uh call it my my hunting property you know let's not talk about the name of it let's not remind these people of that affluent lifestyle that is at at the heart of the matter the the kind of the bedrock of the state's case against your brother who you're getting up here to testify to try to help Let's go down the Ozark Road. I can't let you get out of here without um, that happening. I still have friends of mine who believe he's responsible, but he didn't do it. But his responsibility lies in some sort of Ozark ordeal. He's got himself involved in money and drugs and finance and and, and cartels and all these other um, sorts of things. Any more evidence of that? Any less evidence of that? Is that still something that, that we just enjoy tweeting and discussing and rambling about well i i think he came on i think the the last time i was on was was the day we were wondering whether or not he would testify so since he testified and he certainly testified about an enormous amount of opioids that he was taking daily i think he said something like 1200 milligrams to 3000 milligrams a day like that's that's like that would kill an elephant and, and like he's taking like 30s right and so um you could certainly see listen to get that type of that was one question that how come it wasn't asked where were you getting those from yeah who were you getting those from you know why wasn't that asked by the state on the state that, that's not the medicaid fraudster no i mean if you if you're if you're getting your hands on that much illicit drugs somebody other than some scamster on the end of the dirt road is involved in that well and so so to your question is there anything that helps the ozark saying well to get your hands on that type of oxycontin and stuff you're not dealing with you know the uh the head of the the um church choir right you're you're dealing with folks who break the law and so if you're dealing routinely with folks to break the law to get your hands on that amount of uh opioids they know a you got a lot of money to pay for those and b you may have a lot of opioids laying around and so it if that's happening and these people know that then that could certainly be somebody who comes looking for opioids or for money at at the moselle property and so that that could be kind of in that ozarks line which is you know, we, we go back, I think we met, you and I have talked about it. I don't know if we talked about it on the air before, but you know, that this idea that he's responsible is the idea that 
that is hard for anybody who's heard this case so far to get over. And that's like, listen, you did that much dirt for that long and you have, you have done so many people wrong for that long. It's hard for the regular person to not think somehow, some way this was his chickens coming home to roost, you know, and that's getting to the point he may, maybe he didn't do it, but at the end of the day, he's responsible for it. And to the extent he testified, I think it, I think that it certainly is a, is a more defensible case had he testified that way, but instead he blamed the boat crash. That was odd to me, Patrick. I, I, I thought it was too, um, because, because it certainly, it, it set him up for, for, you know, the, the big contradiction that Waters confronted with confronted him with at the end of that direct examination was, well, okay, well, why'd you lie to the first cop on scene, you know? And, you know, had it been, had it been more of the, I'm responsible, it, he could have easily explained this. Listen, as soon as I pulled up and I saw those bodies like that, I knew that one way or the other, this was, this is something I had done and they had paid the price for. And it was shame that made me not be true. That, that would have been a more believable and logical answer as far as I'm concerned. Um, will we, or will we not ever find out where the money is? I mean, to me, there's still, I mean, I've done back a napkin math. And, and I can carry the one. I'm like Ernest Steve Bass of the Andy Griffith show. I can carry the one. There's still an enormous amount of money that I can't account for. He's on trial for murder, not financial crimes. When do we try to audit the, the, the money that was stolen and, and where that money eventually ended up? Well, and, and, do you, and do you believe there's money out there somewhere not accounted for? It was hard to believe that he spent $10 million on opioids, you know? So... You know, it certainly seemed that there's some money somewhere that's not accounted for. Now, there is a wealth of civil lawsuits um, uh, inv- arising out of this whole affair. And every plaintiff's attorney that's involved in those lawsuits is trying to figure out where money is. Um, I don't know that we ever going to figure it out. I mean, li- listen, if, if he knows where the money is and he ain't told it yet, boy, when you're facing double murder charge, that's the time you try to cut a deal, you know. What is the most serious charge other than double murder he faces? Well, if he gets convicted, um, the fraud the fraud charges, I forget the dollar amount, but it's like fraud over it may be $10,000 or something like that. It's classified as a uh, serious offense under our statute, and I think it's convictions of uh, a third conviction of a serious offense, it's the three strikes and you're out rule so that that gets you life without parole and that was you know that was something that that harpootlian got out in front of a jury and you know it was objected to but he got it out listen th- these fraud all the fraud crimes he's tra- charged with he's very likely going to be subject to life without parole anyway so i mean you know i've said it before on here and and i believe it's probably the case he, he'll probably never see a free rain of sunshine that's that's kind of an interesting take our last question i'll let you get out of patrick mclaughlin of the wakila law firm is um is here with us when will we get a verdict? I mean, you, you, nobody knows, and I, and I certainly understand that. Um, but when do you, I mean, is this another month? Is it another week? Is it another three days? I have a, I don't, I know the guy, it sounded like Judge Newman's plan was to try to close and charge today. Mm-hmm. I, I think that may be a little ambitious. 
I could see them possibly being able to do the closings today and then maybe do the charge, bring them in in the morning, charge them, turn it over to them. So that would, today is Wednesday? Mm-hmm. Okay, so so that's them maybe getting the case Thursday. Um, You know, this case went on, we're day 27? Yeah. So, so, so. Wow. Yeah, so the, so the, listen, the court's going to want to give them as much time as they can to reach a verdict because God knows don't nobody want to have to retry this thing. And so they're going to, they're going to let them deliberate as long as they can. And eventually either they're going to reach a verdict or they're going to tell the judge we're, we're deadlocked at which point there's something called the, the, the Allen charge, which sometimes is referred to as the dynamite charge. And it's basically the court brings them out and lectures them about, ain't we ain't going to pick 12 other people who could decide this better than you can. Y'all need to get in there and decide it dog on it. Um, and, uh, and then they go back in and either that breaks the deadlock or it doesn't. Um, so, but who knows, man, it, 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 deliberations in this could take a long time. This has already lasted a lot longer than we thought. Is a hung jury guilty or innocent? Well, it, you know, but, but my, my argument as a criminal defense lawyer was always, uh, I, I argued one time before a second prosecution that I had won the first case and. And uh, our judge was like, well, Patrick, you didn't really win it. It was a hung jury. I was like, well, my client walked out the front door with me. I consider that a win. He ain't walking out the front door. But listen, a hung jury in this, ain't no doubt about it. For the defense, it's a win. For the state, it's a loss. Good deal. Good. Thank you, Patrick. Go Gamecocks. Beat Clemson. Yeah, go to play tomorrow, Thursday. No, Friday, Friday Saturday, Saturday, and Sunday. Sunday. Friday in Clemson. Saturday in, oh, Friday in Greenville. No, I think Saturday's in Greenville. Saturday's in Greenville. Friday's in Clemson. That's right. And Sunday, then Sunday. Sunday's back home. Sunday's back home. I went with Tam Tam and Lib Lib to the baseball game <laughs> this past Sunday. Asked Patrick if he's going. He said, no, he's going to hang around home and do some um, and do some work. I will be there Sunday. Good though. deal. Good deal. Good to see you, my man. Yeah, man. Thank you very much. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. I don't know how many of you saw this Emerson poll. It's kind of interesting to me. I wanted to get into this in the 9 o'clock hour we got about what three or four minutes here rev Uh, before we take our hard break top of the hour i want to look real quick here it was kind of interesting because it went on to say that um nobody's gaining any traction i mean i know we don't have a presidential poll it's a presidential poll and we've got announced candidates and unannounced candidates but um but it it seems to me that if we aren't careful we're going to be in the same situation in 2024 that we were in 2016 and that is people believe that Trump will make a mistake, that his, um, his support will decline, and somebody like Pence or just, you know, um, well, DeSantis is different. I mean, somebody like Pence or, or Haley. In the GOP primary Emerson poll, Donald Trump's at 55%. That's a crazy number as far as I'm concerned. Ron DeSantis is at 25%. Now, DeSantis, if he announces will get more than 25. I mean, I think any Trump supporter but even accepts that. that. That's a big number. I mean, that's a, a surprisingly high number as far as I'm concerned. Now, I'll level with you. I didn't read any of the sub-tabs and the sample models, but um, but that's I mean, that's a big number. Uh, the others have him at, you know, 43, 42. I mean, I've seen him at 44. I think the Harvard-Harris poll had him at 46. And I've always said... You know, lowest ceiling, highest floor, somewhere between 33 and 45, 46. This Emerson polls an outlier, and I can't figure out why. 
Um, DeSantis is at about where he always is. Uh, let's do this. In the Fox poll, DeSantis is at 28. In the Har- Har- ha- ah, Harvard-Harris poll, he's at 27. Quinnipiac poll, he's at 29. So DeSantis is in the mid to upper 20s, and that's fairly consistent. There's just nobody else out there that I think gains any attention. Um, if Tim Scott were to announce, I mean, does he go from one to five, from one to seven? I don't know. Nikki Haley has announced, and there's not been a bump. I mean, it's still at about 5.3, 5.4. I mean, I think her RCP average, here you go, 5.3%. I read that yesterday. Um, Emerson, she's at five. Fox, she's at seven. Harvard Harris, she's at six. Quinnipiac, she's at five. Um, she's an announced candidate and hadn't moved much at all. DeSantis is an unannounced candidate at, at 25 or six. So if you're a if you're a Haley supporter and you're announced and you're at five or six, DeSantis is unannounced and he's at 25 or six. I mean, help me. I mean, what am I missing here? I understand building momentum and legitimizing yourself as a candidate, but but I don't know how you go from there to there. Um, Mike Pence at seven, seven, four, six, eight. I mean, he's as high as eight. His RCP average is at 6.8. Here you go. Um, Donald Trump's RCP average, 45.2. That's kind of what I've said. I, I think I've been fairly consistent. Uh, his low water mark's about 31-ish, maybe 32. His high water, 45-ish. But the Emerson poll comes out at 55, and that's just like, wow. I mean, where did that come from? And why is that the case? Now, what I'd like to see is um, did they sample more heavily voters in trump carry districts or not? I mean, that would be a very interesting um, thing to know about the, um, the poll. But, but you can't say it's a Trump-friendly poll because nearly everybody else fared about like they always do. Uh, in the Emerson poll, DeSantis is at 25. Okay, he's a little bit less than 27 or 8 or 9. Um, if DeSantis announces and Trump is legitimately at 45, ain't no way. I mean, there's just not any way. Now, if the other numbers are, are closer to accurate and it's 43-28 or it's 44-27, um, it's 43-31, and I'm talking about Reuters, um, okay, it's, 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 it's a contest. I mean, it's a hotly contested primary between two people. Um, I just don't see any room, Rev. Trump takes a lot of the oxygen out of the room. If and when DeSantis, when DeSantis announces, he'll take you know about what's left of the oxygen in the room. So where does a, a Pence, a Haley, a Pompeo, a Cheney, a Cruz, a Christy Noam, a Tim Scott, I mean, where do they gain any traction? I just don't know where you go. Um, I mean, there's just not that much. This will be the final election that the Republican establishment agree that they're Democrats. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they just, they're not, I mean, they're just, they've never been conservatives. They've always been neocons. Right. They've just been exposed. Well, I mean, the, 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 the Democrats are the neoconservatives now, um, but the Democrats are defending every incursion. I mean, Lindsey Graham and a bunch of Democrats, uh, Mitch McConnell and a bunch of Democrats are the ones saying, you know, whatever it takes in Ukraine and we're not cutting social security or, or Medicare. I mean, it's not the conservative movement in America today. I mean, it's populism, and we're trying to sort out um, the energy in populism. Um, I'm going through some of the states here. Arizona, Republican primary, Trump 42, DeSantis 26. I mean, that stands to reason. That's a reasonable number there. When DeSantis announces, Trump goes to uh, 38. 
DeSantis goes to 31-2-3, and you've all of a sudden got, you know, a pretty hotly contested Republican primary. I think DeSantis is going to, I mean, I, I, he's going to run. I mean, there's no doubt about that. He's going to run. It's just going to be very interesting. Um, I don't know if you heard him yesterday when he said he doesn't react to other people. He said, I mean, Trump's a big fish, no doubt about it. But he called me one of the best governors in America until he thinks I might run against him as a as a presidential nominee. I still think, I still think that DeSantis is the favorite. I don't know why. It's just a hunch. Uh, the numbers don't show that. The math doesn't add up that way. But something tells me when DeSantis announces he's running, there, there's going to be a, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just, some of the, some of the Haley crowd will probably say, seeing that's what the Trump crowd doesn't like. The fact that some of the Haley crowd will come on board and, um, and you know, there's this relative scale, too much Trump, not enough Trump. DeSantis seems to be the one that most people believe finds some equilibrium in that. Back in a minute. It's time now for the Wake Up Carolina Winer Line, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. Call 803-720-5260. So, what are you whining about today? Yeah, I got a question for you. At five points, why in the world have they not put turn signals on east and westbound Palmetto Street. Aren't y'all tired of watching these people run the red lights once the light has turned red after green? I mean, five or six cars are coming through there. When is somebody with the um, transportation department going to wake up and go, hmm, this might be a good idea to put a turn signal on Palmetto East and West. Now, they've got one on Cherokee. You know, coming out of the most expensive part of Florence. They got that turn signal. That's the only one. But that's not the one that's needed. It's needed on Palmetto East and West Bound Lanes. Thank you. Okay, I'll agree with that. But what do you do when the cars aren't turning? In other words, there's not a third lane there, right, Ref? I mean, you you travel Palmetto. I travel Palmetto. So in the in one lane you're going straight, in the other lane you could be going straight or you could be turning could be turning left. It's almost like we. I mean, I, I hear what he's saying, and I agree. It creates a, a a a absolute disaster waiting to happen. And when the light turns, and you think you have the the, the right of way, there'll still be four or five cars come through after that. Um, how about a better idea? You ready? I'm always the guy with the best ideas. Oh, correct. Yeah. And I recognize the voice on the last. On the last winer, mm-hmm. um, consider him a good friend of mine. So, so why not a roundabout at five points oh, oh, oh. with a big water feature and a flagpole? Oh, why that, not? Why not? Pretty. Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, why not beauty up the place a bit? So, you, it's not actually five points or six points when you think about it. So, why not a roundabout? I'm serious. I mean, a, a real sophisticated, uh, obviously. They'd have to shut it down for a while, and we'd have to take alternate routes to get to wherever it is we're going. Sumter and Orangeburg, be patient with us. I'm sure you've got these, um, you know, difficult places to navigate in your communities and counties. But in Florence, I mean, Five Points is, I mean, it's become the center of Florence, kind of, in a weird way. Why not, instead of what the caller's talking about, you know, turn lanes and turn lights and, you know, six cars go after the light turns uh, red, why not a roundabout? 
that there, funnels cars it. into. Well, I mean, I don't know that that would solve it or not. I'm not a DOT engineer. I uh, don't have any idea how complicated. I mean, it wouldn't be easy. I'm sure of that. But but something's got to be better than what we have. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And I've always felt, I mean, I, I'll, I'll say this. For whatever reason, in the last six or seven or eight or ten years, we've decided to install some roundabouts in certain places. And every place that I've traveled, they're better than it was. I mean, you got a um, you got a crossroad, you got another crossroad. They've installed a roundabout. It functions a lot more efficiently than it did with either a stoplight or a stop sign. And you've got the right of way. No, I've got I've got the right of way. The old index finger on top of the steering wheel. You go ahead. <laughs> you see me, Rev? You, mm, I see you. And I'm like, see no, how it you, works. I, you know what I say? Who are you? <laughs> You're directing the law. Traffic. Yeah, I mean, you're not the you're not the law. Is that what you think? You don't think they're being sure nice to you? You think, get, who are you, think you yeah, are telling no, me to go? No, no, I'm saying like, you got no more authority this crossroad than I do. What are you doing? Taking your finger, telling me, come on. They're being nice. Well, but, and I do it. I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm good. You go. You know, yeah, I'm, you're not telling well, me what I'm to do. I'm just real cynical, man. I think people will bait you. I really believe that. I think someone would do that of intentionally. And as that. soon as you pull out, they run into the side of you and get out with a neck brace under their seat and oh next thing you know you're in some personal injury court one nine 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 to nine 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 um roundabout let's explore there you go the potential for a roundabout at five points good morning appreciate y'all doing y'all show and i'm having this whiner line president biden is aiding and abetting putin more than he is ukraine our energy policy creates higher oil prices worldwide, and it's keeping oil propped up to fund Russia's war. China's buying more oil. That's an indirect payment to China, I mean to Russia, because oil is so high. Well, I mean, it's not that they're buying Russian oil. They're buying Russian oil at a discounted price. I mean, it, China's making out like a bandit in this um, embargo and um, uh, the uh, the economic sanctions against against China. There are a lot of moving parts to evolving yourself in a global conflict, and I'm afraid. Wow, I'm afraid that the smarter negotiators, the smarter planners, those who are more savvy at considering all the different and varying concerns are not living in Virginia, Washington, and and Maryland. I mean, I'm sorry. I just think our bureaucrats get outsmarted at at almost every turn. I've said it. I'll say it again. I don't want to live in China, but China is a more effectively governed nation than America today. We have become an unserious people governed by unserious people, and, and we fail to realize that there weren't a competition for world supremacy. And I'm talking about the preeminent superpower on the planet today. So, so not only are, I mean, draw a circle here. You ready? I mean, we, we invade, excuse me, we support the Ukrainians defending their territory against a, uh, a Russian aggressor. Russia is benefiting financially. I mean, they're buying their weaponry off the revenue generated by the sale of oil, the majority of which is sold to China and India as we speak. China in particular. No, they're not our friends. So, so how do the Chinese get the money to buy the Russian oil when they're a communist nation? Because in 2001, we allowed them preferred nation status 
and 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 made them a member of the World Trade Organization. Well, we don't run the World Trade Organization. We don't get to decide who does. No, we have a lot more horsepower in the world in the WTO than anybody. If America decided we don't want China in the WTO, guess what? China ain't in the WTO. But in 2001, America decided to legitimize China and their standing in the world by allowing them to be a member of the WTO, World Trade Organization, preferred nation status. So when we made a deal as the Western world to allow China to be the, the, the kind of the manufacturing plant of all Western culture and civilization, they became a wealthy nation. So what do they do with the money and revenue generated by them becoming the manufacturing plant for the world? They buy cheap Russian oil. And the Russians take that money and invest in their nuclear, excuse me, their military arsenal. So we are funding a war against ourselves. Hey, it's uh, Wednesday morning listening to the Nikki Haley, Donald Trump conversation. I guess uh, I'm not really whining, but I think Nikki Haley needs to be groomed for Lindsey Graham's position. Let's take her out of the presidency race. Put her in and. In, uh, in Lindsey Graham's position, because his time's coming up, and uh, and that way we can groom her for president, and uh, and get DeSantis in for president. Appreciate it, Ken. Love the love the show from Sumter. Bye. Thank you very much. Appreciate your call. Appreciate your interest in our feeble attempt at radio brilliance. I don't know where Nikki goes from here. I don't have any idea where Nikki goes from here. I- I'll be the first to say it. Nikki ain't going to be president. I mean, there, there is very, 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 very little chance that Nikki Haley is the Republican nominee for president of the United States. She is the candidate that the establishment believes can most be disguised as an America firster. Key word in that sentence is what? Disguised as an America firster. Nikki Haley is not an America firster. She's never been an America firster. She worked for former President Trump. That gave her some credibility with Trump universe, the Trump voter, and Trump world, but Nikki's always tried to figure out a way to have it both ways. And I think the voters will become well aware of, of her trying to have it both ways. And if the Trump world, I'm talking about America Firsters, if America Firsters say, enough of Trump, I want somebody else, it's going to be Ron DeSantis. I mean, that's why I think when DeSantis gets in, we're going to have a, a hotly contested Republican primary that will include... Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. Tim Scott probably has more upside than Nikki Haley does because Tim has not, in my humble opinion, tried to have it both ways. I mean, Tim's been a bit inconsistent, but all of us are somewhat inconsistent in our political views. There are certain things that I would tell somebody. I mean, I've, I've had conversations with friends, Rev, and they'll say, so you think that? I never imagined you would think that about that. I mean, I'm not in a box this small. Tim's not in a box that small. So if anybody in South Carolina or from South Carolina gains a little momentum, I think it'll be Tim Scott and not Nikki Haley. But I still believe once DeSantis gets in, there ain't a lot of room left. I mean, it's DeSantis and Trump, and they're going to dominate the debate that there'll be some other candidates, probably Rev, vying for, you know, a a vice presidential potential um, nominee. You know, would Nikki be a credible opponent against Lindsey Graham? Of course. No question about it. I mean, she is a um, a revered statewide figure. Um, she was a, uh, by all accounts, mostly a successful governor. So, yeah, I mean, I think Nikki has a much better chance of being a U.S. senator representing South Carolina than she does a president 
of the United States. You've been listening to the Wake Up Carolina Winer Line, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. You got something you want to whine about? Call anytime, 803-720-5260. It's the official and the original Wake Up Carolina Winer Line. And we're back, 843-661-0937. We never went away. <laughs> we just went to a different feature with some canned... What am I, what, what is that, Rev? Yeah, pre-recorded yeah. calls to the Winer Line. Right, you can you call any time and... You don't have to call live to the show to make your wine or your comment, and then we'll play them back during. And the those feature. were good. I mean, th- those were of good quality, no question about it. Let's go to the phone. We have David in the PD. Good morning, David. Hey, good morning. Hey, Ken. I think there was a George Strait song called "Roundabout Way." So you you talking about the roundabout down there in Five Points? Uh, this time next year would have been February 29th. Keep this in mind. <clears throat> Anytime you have a, a leap year, it's an election year. See, that's how the Democrats look at it. It's an election year. It's not an election day. So that gives them an extra day to harvest ballots. And why Why did you bring up this John Fetterman today? Uh, I tell you, uh, that, that guy, I'm thinking about Pennsylvania. Uh, this population movement, how is changed the electoral college and i think we've talked about that before but the i mean the, the republicans have picked up three electoral votes so in other words trump he had 232 electoral votes in 2020 he would have 235 now and the only reason i'm bringing up this fetterman is that you're telling me that here's a guy that, that he's got some issues i think in a way he's they're hoping that uh the governor is going to appoint his wife, maybe, as the new senator or something goes on with that. But you know, path to victory uh, in 2024, if the uh, Republicans were to win Pennsylvania and Georgia, uh, they, can, they could win based on the new um, numbers with the electoral college. I, don't, I, 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 don't know, I do not see any path to win Pennsylvania, because uh, they've only voted one time. That was a miracle when Trump won there in 2016. That was a miracle, but they've only voted once Republican in a presidential election since 1988, and I'll leave you at that. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937 is our number. David hit an interesting point there for a second, and I go back to my opinion about Brian Kemp. That's why I find Kemp so intriguing. You take the South off the board. You got to go win Pennsylvania. You're talking about a reshuffling of delegates, a reshuffling of electoral votes in the Electoral College. It's different now than it was in 20. You got more reds and fewer blues. It isn't a big difference, but it's different. It's going to be even more different in 20 and 2030 after the next census. But you put together a ticket that can go win Pennsylvania or Michigan and Wisconsin. And, and, you know, I'm talking about Arizona. I mean, there are a lot of states in play, but Kemp takes the South off the board. I, 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 so I just, you're talking about if Trump were to pick. Or DeSantis. Kemp I mean, as the running Either one of those guys. Okay. I just think Brian Kemp is the guy that needs to be the VP candidate if he's interested. And it'd be hard to not be interested in somebody like that. I'm asking you to be their vice president. Yeah. I mean, take Georgia off the board. Invest in Pennsylvania, Nevada, Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin. Take a break back in just a few. I mean, I tell you, I have a very average IQ 
and a very average ability to understand and discern things, but my mouth goes a million miles an hour, and then I drink one of these damn Celsius, and my mouth speeds up to two million miles an hour, but I don't get any smarter. You know what I mean? I'm still of average intelligence. I just... My mouth goes 2 million miles an hour. It's the healthiest energy drink there is, and it's branded by Pepsi-Cola. And I drink one at exactly 9 every morning. About 9.30, I am amped and ready to yeah. roll. Yeah. But I'm no smarter than I was <laughs> at 8.55. Just faster. That's right? the big problem. You're right. Hey, attorney Andrew Reed is with us this morning. Andrew, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Glad to be on. I saw some topics. These things interest me in the most unusual sort of way, but I've often wondered um, when someone rants on Facebook, I mean, I've told my wife, don't put that on there. I'm a country boy. So I'm like, don't put that on there. I mean, I don't want any trouble out of those people. I mean, don't. Yeah, but it's true. I said, I don't care. I don't want any trouble out of that. So, so can someone be sued over a Facebook rant is, I guess, conceptually the question I'm asking. Potentially, yes especially if there is a false statement made and they can show that there was any type of damages. But if there's not a false statement, if you go to a restaurant and have a lousy meal, I've always wondered, why don't you take that up with the manager of the restaurant instead of, you know, posting it on Facebook. But if you indeed had a lousy meal, there is no repercussions. There is no, um, uh, there's nothing the restaurant owner can do. Uh, probably not. Again, as long as what you say is truthful and they can make sure that there's no way they can show that it was false. Because the case that you're saying that brought this up is it revolves around uh, bees and beehives, actually. Correct. So a beekeeper sent some beehives to a gentleman that had ordered some. They arrived, the beehives and the bees in them had died. Um, so the gentleman, thinking that it was an issue with the bees, went on, posted a rant saying that they – that business had sold them unhealthy, sick bees, and because of that, don't buy them there, things of that nature, and went on this Facebook rant. Well, the business was able to show, no, they were healthy, and it actually turned out they were harmed because of some issues with the transportation. And so then that comes about. Business could show that they had the damages. They had lost business because of that rant. So then they were able to prove to a court and the jury and they ultimately won over $300,000. Wow. Is some of the concern, you're an attorney, you know how this system works better than I. I'm a former uh, former politician, business guy, host a radio show. It's hard to sue a big company because they have big budgets, a lot of money. They can hold you up in court. As we like to say in the world, they can money whip you. Is it is it more likely you're successful against a smaller company than, say, you know, one of the major American retailers or brands? I would actually say, uh, let me put it this way. If you make a rant against for a big business such as a big major coffee shop, they're probably just going to reach out to you say, hey, we're sorry for this. Can we give you a gift card to make it, make it better? They're not going to try to probably come to you. Again, the other thing is they're going to have trouble showing that just one Facebook rant caused damage to their business. But a mom-and-pop business – if they can, they can might be able to show one Facebook rant, our business dropped 50% after that rant was posted. That business probably would be a, a little bit, have an easier time being able to prove up a case against you. Very well explained. Andrew, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. You're welcome. Glad to be on. And there, there is a case out there, $370,000 in compensation from a jury about this bee business. <laughs> 
y'all said he ordered some bees and they were dead. And um, something happened to the transportation, killed all the bees. And he went on to basically, I mean, he went on a rant without doing any investigation mm-hmm. and due diligence and said, hey, man, this dude that owns this company sold me a bunch of dead bees. And the dude that owned the company said, I didn't sell you any dead bees. I don't sell dead bees. I mean, I've been in business for 30 years selling bees. Um, and they found out the trucking company had mishandled the the cargo. The bees were, you know, placed in some sort of cargo. And um, and next thing you know, the, the guy has a big decline in business. I mean, he's not selling anywhere near as many bees. I've just always wondered, forget the legalities for a second, but 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 as someone who goes on Facebook and rants, about a um, a meal that was not up to bar. I mean, you went to a restaurant, you expected a good meal and good service, you didn't get either. I, I, I just question why you believe it's okay to let the world know that you had a bad meal and bad service. I mean, I understand you had a bad meal, bad service, that sucks. Uh, did you talk to the manager? Did the manager try to address it in a in a meaningful fashion? And I guess as a business owner, I'm always sympathetic to the guy that owns the business. Uh, remember, the I told you, uh, when I was running for lieutenant governor, one of the great speeches, I mean, of many, one of the great speeches I gave was um, in Greenville. And I elaborated on my extensive business experience. And Rev, I talked about EBITDA, and I talked about ROI, and I talked about NOI, and I talked about debt modification, and I talked about just everything you could imagine to lead uh, the potential voters into better understanding how sophisticated a businessman I really was. So I get in the car with Kahaley, we're going home, and I said, Robert, what did you think? He said, it was, a, it was a lousy speech. I said, Robert, did you not hear me talking about debt modification, EBITDA, return on investment, net operating income? Did you not understand? I mean, Robert, a lot of people don't understand. He said, that's exactly my point. Most people don't understand uh, what you're explaining to them. Um, and I've never forgotten that. Keep it simple. Stupid is kind of the best way. Mm. We got a call? Uh, we do. Let's go to the phone. Jordan in Somerville. Hi, Jordan, you're on the air. Hey, how you doing, Lieutenant Governor Art? Hey, sir. How are you? I'm doing good. This is uh, Jordan Cooper. You remember me from uh, the Haley and Bauer office. I met you during the transition to your uh, Lieutenant Governorship. Even though it didn't go like you thought it would, you're doing great now. So I, I remember you well. How are you? I'm I'm doing good. It's actually my birthday today, so I was uh, calling in to wish y'all a happy Women's History Month and Irish American History Month. If um, any of your family or friends are Irish, but I um, was just calling in to wish you well and to um, talk on the show. Very kind of you. Happy birthday, my man. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you, Lieutenant Governor Hart. <laughs> Have a good day. Appreciate that. I, do, I remember that guy real well. That was nice. Uh, yeah, I, I remember a lot of these. You know, it's kind of interesting, and, and we, we we touched on this. Um, Rev and I are, are, are beginning to really formulate the podcast plan. I mean, he and I have had a lot of conversations for uh, really a year. Yeah, we've been formulating for a while. Well, I mean, we have. I mean, we've made some necessary adjustments. I've got a faster computer. Today's the first day. Um, you like that? I like it. I like it a lot. I can actually, um, well, actualities. Yeah. I can play some of the actualities off my computer. What's an actuality? Well, an actuality is when I, um, <laughs> well, I'll give you an example. Real clear yeah. politics has a, um, hold on a second. Let me, let me at least know or pretend that I know what I'm doing here. Okay. So in the, uh, in the category of actualities at my disposal right now, Reb, 
I have Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene explains national divorce. Um, Dr. Burks, lab leak origin of COVID is plausible. Christopher Ray, the FBI for quite some time has believed COVID originated in a lab. Uh, Ron DeSantis on Trump attacks. He used to say I was a great governor. I don't pay attention to the background noise. Um, I could easily, at, at, at a moment's notice, play these actualities off this computer, mm-hmm. but I couldn't play them off the other because it was too um, just old and slow, yep. I guess is the best way. You're talking about gigabytes and mm-hmm. megabytes and all these other sort of memory, storage, and all these other good things. Now, the, the one exception I'll take is when he says I don't pay attention to the background noise, Trump ain't background noise in the Republican primary. I can, um, I can assure you with that. But anyway, we have... We've invested a lot of time, energy, and effort into this podcast. And, you know, we we started talking about it a year ago. Next week, they'll be made available on wherever you get your podcast from. I'm excited about it. I hardly ever get anxious or nervous, but I'm extremely anxious. I'm extremely nervous about this. And, and I'll tell you, I, I'll let you in on a, on a trade secret. You ready? We can say that we have millions and millions and millions of listeners and ain't a damn thing you can say about it. You can't prove that we don't. You can laugh. <laughs> you can laugh and say you're, you're crazy. You don't have anywhere near that many listeners, but we can say that. I mean, we get Nielsen ratings and you know, they're, they're proprietary and they're confidential and you can't talk about besides Rev gets nervous when I go down this road anyway, but I mean, we do well. Let me just say that we do well. I mean, I can say that we do exceedingly well in our market, in our time slot, and I am most appreciative to you for your support in our profitable and successful endeavor in radio. Here's the difference in digital. You ready? <laughs> yeah. We know exactly how many of you are listening or watching or not. That's right. I mean, there is a very defined um, gauge of success or failure. So when we launch no stoplights, um, we don't have any idea. We, we think that we can build an audience, and we, we, we sold the notion to the powers to be by what we've done on the radio. And, and you know, in, in all honesty, Rev, jump in here. Our ratings and revenue have increased every year. They've, they've been good. I mean, when people say yep. radio's dying, I say, well, it ain't dying for us. I mean, we've done pretty well in our in our marketplace, in our, in, our, in our genre of spoken word radio. It's not even talk radio anymore, spoken word radio. But the, um, the podcast adds another element. Let's you in on kind of a secret. This morning when we got here, we turn on a bunch of lights, turn on a bunch of cameras, and I've tried to look into the camera a lot more than look at Rev. Rev is kind of my um, um somebody told me one day Rev's the you know the uh, the ping pong table that you store and you fold one side up. Yep. And if you want to play ping pong against and there's nobody there, you kind of play against the wall. Mm-hmm. Rev's the wall. You know, I bounce things off Rev, and I always look at Rev, and he's always there. And Rev goes, "Okay, whatever you say." <laughs> I mean, you know everything. I've learned that you know a long time ago that. Anything that comes out of your mouth is the absolute un, un, unfiltered truth. So, um, I mean, mm-hmm. but, but somebody's got to run the machine. Right, right. But, uh, and, but, and we have to communicate, uh, I guess, non-verbally mm-hmm. about timing cues and phone calls and things like that. So you have to kind of look through the glass well, where like I'm in the control manager. Room you're That's like right. a third base coach. I mean, you're making hand Giving you the and, signals, yeah. But, but now all of a sudden we've got this visual component, and, and i got to be real careful to not get so animated with my hands and spitting all over the place and, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, the, the dirty little and look at it rare for the sign language. But, but, you know, I'm to the point now, and I think Rev will agree. We're to the point now that we're comfortable with what we've done on the radio. We're not complacent by any stretch, no. but we always felt digital was our next step forward. 
And next week, there'll be a couple of podcasts uh, made available to you, our listeners, who we hope become you, our podcast subscribers. And um, but But once again, we can say what we're doing on the radio, and nobody can prove us wrong or dispute us. If I go on a podcast and say, hey, we got 25,000 viewers and there's only 6,000, then we're just being fundamentally dishonest. So the, the metric and measure of which success or failures find on the internet and digital media is very precise. I mean, it, it's very, <laughs> it's out there for the world to see. And, um, and it's just kind of interesting who succeeds, who fails, why they succeed, why they fail. Uh, real interesting. We've got a company in Boston that is a um it is owned by the guy that owns this radio station one of the owners of the radio station so i told rev this morning i said hey man i need a clock i mean i need a clock in here to tell me i mean i know with the radio i mean i've, I've got all this figured out uh, we got this segment that segment another segment another hour another day but but in this podcasting it's going to be one hour roughly it could be 50 minutes it could be an hour and 10 minutes but it's going to be roughly one hour in length and and i thought that i needed a clock to kind of condition myself, have I spoken for eight minutes or 22 minutes? Because sometimes I lose track of time. That's pretty obvious. So Rev says, hey, the guys up north, the northern aggressors, say they'd rather you not have a clock because one of your skills is to be somewhat organic and freewheeling. And if you have a clock, you may try to marry yourself to that particular time frame and that particular time window, and it may not be as organic, real, authentic, and genuine. So... You know, I said, that makes sense, Rev. I thought that was good advice. That was uh, Craig at Studio 550 Boston, who is a podcast producer. And he actually, for people that go online and listen to this show archive, he processes that every day and distributes that amongst all of the uh, the podcast outlets. It is so amazing to me how little I know <laughs> about what everybody else does. I mean, it's, I, mean I, I mean that in the most sincere way imaginable. When, when, you know, I go on the air at 605, go off the air at 10, other than that, I have no idea what happens in relation to this feeble attempt at Radio Brits. Do we have somebody on the phone? Jim in Florence. Hey, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So I I got a suspicion that a clock would never slow you down. Mm, I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> but, hey, hey Ken, if, if, Amer- if uh, baseball was America's pastime, uh, boomers, their pastime would be beating up on millennials and anybody younger than them. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, uh, I, I think I came out of the womb hearing boomers beating up on us. Um, but if you were 18, um, out of high school, or if you were 22 out of college right now, would you join the military? Wow. No. Okay. So then why are we going to beat up on millennials for not joining the military? Granted millennials, um, are the millennials are the ones that died, um, and gave their life. Uh, throughout these Iraq and Afghan wars. So, you know, I, we need to be careful beating up on that generation because they're, they're, they're coming, aging out of the military now um, at this point. Um, but there is no reason to join the military at this point um, between the vaccines, um, the social experiments going on, uh, and what have you. Um, furthermore, we're forgetting a concept. We, we talk about it all the time, which is this box checking that goes on. And, and we see it in the Biden administration about you got to have this many black people and this many white people and this many gay people. If you're a straight white male, what incentive do you have in today's world to work hard? 
so you're beating up on a generation for being lazy, whether, but there's a, there could be a disagreement if they are lazy or not, but you're not incentivizing them not to be lazy. Don't disagree with that. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. And, and I think I've gone on the record. I mean, I, I do contradict myself at times, but, but I don't know that history will treat the baby boomers kindly. I mean, I've said it over and over again. Technically, I'm last year the baby boomer. I mean, there's a, a couple of different definitions out there of time period or time frames of which they say these are the boomers. I was born in 1963, so technically, I'm last year baby boomer. And we have become real arrogant in our midlife. We've, we've talked about all the advancement of mankind and the things we've been a part of, and we did this and we did that. We have been unbelievably gluttonous. I'm the boomers, my generation. Now, once again, I'm a young boomer, but I'm a boomer nonetheless. And as I honestly critique, handicap, scrutinize, judge what my generation has done in relation to the nation we found, we inherited, we prospered from, we built lives upon, we've done a pretty lousy job. I mean, there's some things we got right, but there's a lot of things we got wrong. And, and I think Jim nails it. The one thing we become real good at is telling other generations how sorry and no count they are. And I just think it's kind of a transitioning of, um, you know, we're set in our ways, so to speak. You know, we, um, we've lived a lot of our lives. Um, I mean, I, I know I've lived more days than I will live. I mean, I hope I've got a lot more days ahead of me. I hope the podcast is successful. I hope Jim calls into this radio show 10 years from now. But, but odds are I've lived longer than I'm going to live. And I am somewhat set in my ways. I have a certain value system. And here's what I'll say to Jim, and here's what I'll say to millennials and Xers and Yers and Zers. There are certain truisms in life. I think dedication, I think principle, I think work ethic, I think being on time, I think being honest. I mean, I failed miserably at all of those at certain points in my life. But I don't know what, what, what generation Zers are dealing with that I didn't. I don't think they respect what we may have had to deal with that they don't. But, but the truisms in our life are things that I think are timeless. And I think we, we forsaken a lot of those values. We don't believe they're as important as I think they are. And by that, Rev, I mean, you know, kindness and decency and punctuality and, and, and you know, kind of a reverence of, of society. I, there's just certain, I mean, it amazes me how easy it is for somebody younger than I to drop the F-bomb in front of 100 people. But I'm not blaming millennials. I'm not blaming any generation or not. But there's something about society. And I guess boomers are responsible for creating this society. We've had more impact on culture than any other generation that, that America's dealing with today. I mean, the greatest generation and its impact are becoming dominated by the boomers and their impact. So, so when we hear uh, a generation Xer, you know, dropping the F-bomb in, in a Chick-fil-A in front of 30 or 40 adult people, where did they get that that's okay from? I mean, they didn't build society. They didn't construct the norms and abnorms of, of how they're able to function and behave. I mean, we, we kind of, we're in control of the world now. And, and, and I mean, the, the, the generational riff will always be there. My dad didn't like me listening to the flock of seagulls. I don't like certain things my kids do. But there are some generals of life that are timeless. And if we don't believe they matter, no matter what generation you're from, we'll get exactly what we deserve. Take a break. 
Back in a minute. 843-661-0937, our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Frank in Hartsville. Morning, Frank. Morning. I just got a quick question. What do we have to do to make Western Europe responsible for Ukraine and get us out of there? Thank That's, you. Thank you. Appreciate that. That man lies where I lie. That's exactly where I stand. I went back last night and looked at some of the money that Western Europe is investing in defending Ukraine. It ain't much. I mean, I understand Poland's GDP is minuscule compared to America's, and I accept this, Rev. I accept to which much is blessed, much is expected. I mean, that, that's biblical. I mean, that's prophetic. I understand that. I, I believe that with every fiber of my being. But, but, but NATO has a responsibility, and, and NATO, the, the, the member nations, if NATO is so deeply concerned about Russian aggression, Russian expansionism, then why is NATO not putting its money where its mouth is? Why are they deferring to the United States? The one thing Trump said that even the most ardent non-Trump supporter, I don't know where Jeff would land here, but I mean, I'm mean i thinking about the never-Trumpers in my world. The one thing they'll give Trump credit for, well, two things. You ready? China and NATO. I mean, I've heard a lot of people who say, man, I wouldn't vote for Trump if he was running against Hitler. But I'll give him credit. He identified the danger of China as clearly as any president we ever have, and he demanded of NATO to do exactly what NATO was supposed to do. The countries are spending somewhere in the neighborhood of 1% GDP, about uh, 40% of what they're required to spend per some of the statutory agreements via NATO. So I mean, let me ask you this. Who has more at risk with Russia's expansion, Poland, Germany? Italy, France, or America. I mean, there's something called the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, that basically gives us some degree of um, of solace, comfort, not being as concerned about Russian aggression. I mean, if the Russians are as aggressive in pursuit of uh, expanding into territories they don't have sovereignty over, then why is Poland only spending 1% of its GDP to defend itself? Why are some of the other neighboring and border nations um, I, I mean, I, it's a complicated situation, and it's not as easy to answer as what I'm trying to argue over the over the radio. But but we're at 135 billion dollars. The other nations collectively are, are somewhere around 25 or 30 billion. That's not America first policy. I'm sorry, that's not. How many of you believe that your kid or grandkid are more at risk? By the expansion of the Soviet, former Soviet Union, currently Russia, under Putin's control, or fentanyl making its way across the southern border. I mean, as a matter of priority, as a matter of policy, I mean, if your job as an American politician is to look after America's best interests in priority, then why are we allowing to happen on the southern border what we are while continuing to fund Ukrainian forces to the degree we are? Very serious question, and we've not got a serious answer. Enjoy your day.